I'm Rob, the original, you might say, and welcome to the 100th episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. We'd like to thank the BBC and Bad Wolf TV in helping us celebrate this fantastic achievement by announcing the newest doctor, Shudi Gatwa. Shudi, 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 Shudi. Yay. Yay. How are you going, Mark? I'm good, buddy. How are you? Welcome back. Rumours of my death have been exaggerated, but like a McDonald's Happy Meal, I'm only here for a limited time only. <laughs> And we're all going to be choking in a plastic toy after this. Is that right? <laughs> Have you noticed, Mark, that they've replaced their plastic spoons with wooden ones? My daughter, after she's had a hard night doing homework, she wants to go to Macca's. So oh. we roll around at 11 o'clock and ask for a chocolate sundae. And they give us these wooden spoons that feel like you're scraping sandpaper along the top of your tongue. It's disgusting. We have to bring our own metal spoons from the, from the cutlery drawer just to experience the chocolate sundae as God and Ronald McDonald intended. It's have awful. you ever tried the uh, milkshakes at the moment? It's uh, paper straws. That's yeah, awful. It's, That's awful. Yeah, you know yeah. who I blame? It's the woke generation that celebrated Jodie Whittaker's announcement five years ago. I blame you, people. And where are they now, Rob? Where are they now? Crying into their beer because Shooty Gatwa is the new doctor. Shooty, 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 shooty. So obviously, uh, later on in this episode, uh, you and faux Rob, or Rob <laughs> Lloyd, as we say, uh, will be talking about top five stories featuring the master and uh, with added me sprinkled in throughout the episode, unfortunately. Yes. But uh, because um, that was recorded a couple of days ago and Shudi Gatwa is the new doctor, we thought we'd drop this in at the very top of the episode just to entertain ourselves and, of course, our loving audience. So That's so right. I've also invited other Rob to uh, give us his thoughts as well, so I'll be adding that into this little uh, segment as well. As we know, Shudi Gatwa is the new Doctor. I may do that for the rest of his tenure as the Doctor. Um, <laughs> yeah. So he has been announced. Now, Mark, yes. the... In the past, mm. we've had press conferences, yes. we've had live appearances smuggled in a car under a black blanket, <laughs> we've had uh, confidential episodes wholly devoted to a very young man becoming the doctor. Yes. A few days ago, we all became aware of an Instagram post, because, you know, it's 2022 and everyone's on Instagram, apparently, mm. of uh, from Shooty Gatwas. <laughs> uh, that's getting old real quick. I won't do that again. Uh, his Instagram, where there was two hearts plus a blue box, and then... Russell T Davies liked it, and then it was on for young and old, wasn't it? A lower key announcement this time, wasn't it, Rob, as you mentioned before? I mean, it seems like the social sort of got wind of it first, and then the news outlets, and then all of a sudden that the BAFTAs, it all sort of came in, into fruition. But as you said before, there was no special television appearances during the FA Cup. They probably learned their lesson from that one. The confidentials are long gone. Yes, keep in mind, mm. and it's somewhat paradoxical that... Television isn't as influential or in people's lives as it was, you know, as little as four or five years ago. Mm. Trudy Gatwa has got apparently uh, an Instagram following of 2.6 million people, which wow. someone pointed out today is actually more uh, people following Legend of the Sea Devils. <laughs> 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 probably BAFTA's got more than Legend of the Sea Devils as well. And, you know, the announcement got an enormous amount of free coverage all around the world. I mean, media is ravenous for free content or just content. Mm. And the announcement of a new doctor, a black actor, a young black actor, mm. uh, just feeds that content wonderfully. So, I mean, it was in the New York Times, it was in CNN, uh, it was in the, you know, the Age newspaper here, the Nine newspapers, it was everywhere. And the you, Daily Mail, of course, and the I've, comments section were very enlightening, can I just say. Yeah, well, social media is its own beast, I suppose, Mark, isn't it? So um, um, you're not surprised that a bunch of, you know, keyboard cowards... Uh, <laughs> are hiding behind their hate and just posting bile and stuff like that. Keeps them alive, doesn't it? The, the hate keeps them alive. And put, mm. <laughs> boiling in their own urine, basically. So, so well, Mark, where were you when the news broke? I was just sitting at home, I think I was, and all of a sudden, you know, it was like a trickle of, of rumours and started hitting my... Uh, 
you know, direct messages on what our applications are using. And all of a sudden, mm. and then I started pinging other people going, have you heard this one? They go, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on like Donkey Kong. And then yeah. it's the next thing, you know, it's an announcement at 12.30. And yes, the it all started, you know, uh, hitting the socials. Then you go, oh, maybe it is true. And of course, when BBC News starts, um, you know, advertising that it's happening, then you go, yeah, it's uh, it's locked and loaded as it were. So it was... Uh, quite interesting to watch the development of that story carry along because usually you see stories that start on all the social media and then clearly defunct in the first 30 minutes but for a surprise mm. for once it proved out truthful to be true you did mm. i mean i was i was the same as you i was uh tapping madly away at something i'm working on and um you just sort of see messages that it was on twitter i think actually there were people who were sort of making reference to the instagram post so mm. uh, and then it just all kicked off i mean i i think in the internet age everyone basically uh, awake at that time had the same experience and then to mm. see it confirmed i get the impression that maybe there was a leak that, yeah. that was coming that they couldn't sort of you know put their foot down on to stop mm. so mm. They, they ran with this but you know on the other hand uh, as we said mentioned before shooty's uh my, my mate shooty his uh his his instagram following is enormous so you could leverage that and get all that free publicity, and you know, I don't think you know Bad Wolf Telly paid a single cent to get the news out, and it's out there, and it was trending for a while as things trend on the internet. So, it's a bit of a masterstroke, really, in the end. Well, the master was running it, wasn't he? Mister RTD uh, is you know back behind the chair and uh, pulling all the levers already. Remember last year when that the announcement was made that you know RTD was coming back? The, uh, did you did you sense that there was a lot of a groundswell of excitement about oh, there that? There was, except for me at the time. Yes. <laughs> I'll be honest well, with you, but. Look, you know, I've slightly changed, so uh, you know. Well, I remember sitting in a cupboard, effectively attempting to oh. convince you that it was a good idea. <laughs> what was happening? But my, my question, uh, pivoting off that, Mark, is with the announcement of uh, Mr. Gatwa, uh, do you feel a renewed sense of excitement for the show, given where we've been for the last four or five years? Well, look. To be honest with you, I've never seen Sex Education. What? I've never seen any of his work. What? So to me, he is uh, a Matt Smith territory where really? I had to go and see, yeah, I've never, never seen the TV show. My wife and my daughter watch it and they reckon it's hilarious. Yes. Um, but I, and I know you and, and Dave Kitchen watch it as well. So mm. like when Matt Smith was cast, I went and watched, you know, Party Animals and a few other shows he was on to try and get a sense of the man, as it were. Um, I'll go and have a look at um, this show. And I think you looked on his as an IMDb, it's about four things he's been in. Is that right? Look, you know, given where I am, he's only 29, which is, you know, shocking. Uh, yeah, his, his IMDb, his, um, his performance list uh, sort of tallies to a stage production, a Shakespearean production, uh, two and a half movies. He's in the Barbie movie, like about 90% of Hollywood, apparently. Um, and three or four TV uh, productions, one of which, as you mentioned, was Sex Education, which I think was his really his breakout role. If anyone has not watched Sex Education, I invite you to uh, at least watch the very first scene of the first episode, which is really a statement of intent for the show. Um, it is, I think, as you mentioned before, uh, I, I love it. I, th I think it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not of the real target age group you know it's it's aimed at my daughter my 17 year old daughter who devoured it uh, all three seasons in about a week uh, when the third season came out it's funny it's poignant it's 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 entertaining it's dramatic um and shooty plays an integral part in the uh in, in that in that series insofar as he, he plays an out uh gay young man a, a high school student who's navigating you know life 
mm. in, 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 the, in the 21st century as a gay man. And, mm. uh, but, but specifically being a gay man of colour, his character is not a Nigerian. And in the third season, he goes back to Nigeria for a family uh, wedding and he sort of has to navigate the fact that, you know, culturally, uh, religiously, uh, his family back there, uh, you know, homosexuality is an anathema and um, he has to sort of come to terms with that. But he, he gives a real, I mean, looking at him, watching him, listening to him, he's an enormously charismatic uh, actor. I mean, he, he really does. I mean, against, uh, is it Asa Butterworth, I think is the, the actual lead of the show. Um I think that's who it is. I can't remember. Um, he, he really holds his own. He's really, really magnetic to look at. Uh, he, he's got a you know a huge smile, uh, just really, really magnetic p- performance. So I can see why if RTD isn't sort of you know you know pulling the other one, he, he sort of came in at the last moment for his audition and blew the person away that they said that they'd sort of half picked uh, because he does really dominate the screen. And he he can you know there's that broadness to his uh, performance, but he also can do the poignant. Uh, emotional stuff uh, dramatic stuff really really well so i think they're going to sort of use those uh talents uh charisma definitely to uh to, to to inform the uh the writing and the performance of the character it's interesting unlike matt smith though he has a already built-in audience with that sex education audience as it were so yeah. um it's a bit like davison with all creatures who was established already had a built-in audience with all creatures basically said oh i'm actually intrigued to see how he goes as the doctor so that sort of audience traveled along with him so i would say that there's a little bit of that behind it as well it's smart right so i'm intrigued to see where it goes and i'm intrigued to see what he does with the role and my opinion has changed definitely since my slightly dour reaction to when I heard RTD was coming back. So, Mm. but then again, having sat through the last two specials, I think anything would be an improvement at the moment. So the test pattern, I think Mark would be an improvement. I'm just wondering what approach RTD will take in terms of, I mean, when the show came back, there was the repercussions of the time war. You didn't see the time war. You just saw the repercussions on, uh, on, on the character of the doctor. I'm wondering now whether RTD will take a similar approach and jump the series forward from the regeneration of the 13th Doctor and have another instigating galactic-wide event that informs, you know, this new Doctor. I, I don't know necessarily, but I mean, pure, pure speculation, obviously, but, you know, does it necessarily follow that we see uh, the 13th Doctor regenerate into the 14th Doctor, or do we see, you know, nothing? This, this is sort of the, the 13th Doctor's era sort of ends on that regeneration before we see the new Doctor, and then RTD picks it up, you know, however many incarnations forward, for instance, because there could be, you know, further gaps. Yeah, this is going to be the biggest reset since 2005, but I think it would be foolish to do another galactic war type of scenario. Mm. Um, I think it's probably going to be... It, obviously, you know, JD is going in a blaze of uh, rainbow-coloured energy. Uh, you've got the 60th anniversary specials next year. Like, it's going to be a mixture of old. Whether that the 14th will be able to play a part of that, I'm not too sure. But certainly, Series 14 uh, will be the, the debut, I think. Yeah. But there will, I reckon it will be potted around um, during those specials as well. But um, I don't think RTD won't play the Galactic War again. It's been done. You know what I mean? Like, wondering yeah. what sort of reset he. I mean, because the time war was effectively a reset for the. You know, for if the, he's got the story any sense, yeah. If he's got any sense, regeneration. Don't bother. Yeah. Just start. Just have adventures. You know, just have fun adventures. Like I remember you saying many years ago. Yeah. I don't think we need to sort of keep dwelling back on the past. I mean, there's been enough wreckage <laughs> with the turtless children 
you know, <laughs> if any if RTD wants to fix anything, go and fix that first in one line. Oh no, I dreamt it. I was in the shower. Actually, we'll get we'll get back to the, the Chibnall and Whitaker era as it bows out a little in a, in a short while. I was just wondering about the pattern that we going ahead in terms of production. So, the centenary special is done and dusted and screens later in the year, obviously around the BBC centenary, mm-hmm. and then. I'm assuming that the production of the new era in terms of shooting begins sometime this year. With the 60th anniversary, are we expecting that between the centenary special and the 60th anniversary special, there will be no Doctor Who on our televisions? I believe there will be no Doctor Who. That's fine. Well, no, it's not actually fine. Again, the show is absent for an extended period of time. If we think we surmise that perhaps there is no appearance of Shooty at the end of the centenary special. Does that mean at the 60th anniversary, and shoot me down if I'm wrong with that in a sec, does that mean at the 60th anniversary is his first appearance or do rumours indicate something else entirely? That's a very good question. Look, if they've got any sense, and I've heard that potentially they are inserting him into the centenary special to fix it up a bit, the alleged three 60th anniversary specials. I don't know if they're going to be featuring him at all, but definitely we'll be featuring a old or two or three old doctors in there. We've obviously party to the same rumours that you know, mm. sort of circulating. I mean, it, it if uh, Shruti Gatwara appears in the 60th anniversary and then doesn't appear again until, you know, sometime in 2023, do you, do you have a problem of, you know, uh, stumbling momentum insofar as, like Colin Baker appeared in Twin Dilemma and then didn't appear for another nine months. Would it be better for him not to appear in the 60th uh, I, anniversary yeah. and then just wait for a regular 14th season? I know what you're coming from, but I think I think Russell T Davis even writing something on a napkin will be slightly better than the Twin Dilemma. So I don't have any any problem with a fragmented appearance in one of those specials and then sort of giving you the the appetizer before you get to the main course. Yeah, I think. These guys know what they're doing, unlike you know in the eighties, where it was very more haphazard and uh, you know differences of opinion in terms of quality were slightly well, uh, you know reading, askew. Re- yeah, well, reading previous guests Richard Molesworth's book on the J and T era, I'm, I'm stunned yeah. that anything actually got made at any point, given <laughs> how much your time was in the bar. <laughs> uh, bar America, a plane over the Atlantic, Australia. You know, uh, it's, anyway. Yeah. Things were different in the 80s. Having lived through it, we, we should understand that. Oh, All right. Simpler times. <laughs> now, just before we end this segment, so I want to say that I'm really excited uh, mm. about Shruti Gatwa's um, uh, casting. And, mm. uh, well, as excited as a jaded, you know, middle-aged man can be, of course, I just think that the whole uh, regeneration of the production, so taking it away from the BBC, handing it over to Bad Wolf TV, uh, RTD coming back, uh, a new vibrant actor, um, and the promise of, you know, some pretty good celebrations for the twenty, uh, the 60th anniversary indicates that the show is not dead. Now, on that score, Mark, just looking back over the last few years, that the Jodie Whittaker era started out with a lot of promise when mm. she was announced, mm. and it, it seems to have petered out like my bladder control uh, late at night. <laughs> You're taking a piss again? Yes. Mm. Look, part of it is COVID cutting into the available episode, you know, the ability to produce a TV series. But, you know, I think that for all the promise that, you know, Chibnall and Whitaker initially sort of, I think, brought to the show, a new approach, mm. there was no new approach. I think Whitaker's bloody performance is just David Tennant in a pair of culottes and a rainbow T-shirt. It is, I don't know why 
she wasn't pulled aside or wasn't told to bring her own, you know, character, her own, uh, in, you know, experiences to the, to the performance because it, it just feels a lot like Tenet. And, and Chibnall, for a man who's a fan, I, I, I'm just, again, look, making television is hard and writing for television is hard, but I just don't understand when you, you know, a long-term fan, you've got, you know, production chops, you, you've, you've produced your own shows, you know, Broadchurch, et cetera. When, you, when it comes to Doctor Who, it just seemed that he didn't quite meet the mark on a lot of occasions, it feels like. If you sort of look at the, the announcements that's happened, uh, and I think the fans are definitely looking forward to the RTD 60th anniversary specials, specials and the new Doctor more than the centenary. I mean, there's no hype around it so far. I know it's a little bit further away. Mm. But really, apart from the trailer, isn't this the sort of time to get the ties pumped on it? You know what I mean? Try but, and sort of tease it out. But, but this is but, the problem sorry, with this entire era, mate. That's this is exactly the problem it. with this entire Spot era. On. The publicity for it, the, the, the it was all in a bloody locked box, mm. you know, dropped into the into the Pacific and sunk to the bottom. Mm. No one knew nothing at any particular point in time uh, about what was coming up. Really, there was no effort really to, to, to pump up the tires of the show, to bring hype to, uh, to an audience. And, you know, the television viewing experience has changed, obviously, and, you know, it's more fragmented and audiences are falling away, but they haven't simply fallen away. I think that they've dropped off, off, off a cliff with, in terms of Doctor Who. And look, you know, again, good on Chris Chibnall for coming in with a clear vision of, you know, what he wanted for his Doctor, a, a, a female, you know, break that mould. Great. That's fantastic. That's all he did. That, that's all he did there. If you look at it at the end of the day, what has he done? What has he done in his three years? He's just cast a woman in the role. I yeah. mean, I mean, you read the interview in the latest Pravda with him. Mm. That was extraordinary. If I'm reading that as a as another broadcaster or, or running a production company, and I'm reading that gun, I, I've had the biggest franchise in the world, and I didn't really know what to do with it in three years. Mm. I mean. I'd be going. I wouldn't be hiring him in a heartbeat. You know, I mean, what I mean? Uh, that's, that's extraordinary. Well, uh, it it these days with television, it's all about drawing everything together into one sort of story arc isn't it i mean it's it's season to season of it's it's a novel in television episodes are chapters um you're in for the long haul and you could see with chibnall's i think first season or series that he wanted to break that mold and sort of go back to early doctor who where it was uh story of the week sort of thing and no real interconnective tissue there was there but well, and while that sort of broke, broke, broke the mould of what RTD and, and, and Moffat did, I think it merely served to highlight that that older approach no longer works and it deprives an audience from becoming in, truly invested in the characters and their, and their adventures if there are no escalating stakes, if it's just, you know, one story, adventure move on. One story, adventure, move on. One story, adventure, move on. It, it, these days, that doesn't wash with people. They want to dive into a character's arc. They want to dive into a story arc. They want to embrace the full thing and have a full experience, not, you know, bits and bits and bits and bits. And again, I go back to Whitaker. She can clearly act. You watch her in Broadchurch and she's a grieving mother coming to terms with the loss of her child through the three series. And she's really good at that. Okay. But I think you need a different skill set or a different approach when you come to a family drama or family adventure show like Doctor Who. And again, I you know I haven't watched all all the episodes of that era. I've watched about half of them. Okay, but I think I can safely say that I don't know that her performance is necessarily indicative of her as an actor. 
I mean, you can point to the Matt Smith era and go, Matt Smith is definitely playing, you know, a character. David Tennant has brought a particular performance to the to his his era. Jodie Whittaker feels like she was riffing on previous eras, and I very very, you know, it, 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 I never got the real sense of the 13th Doctor, who was the 13th Doctor. And even when Chibnall tries to inject a bit of drama in terms of this burgeoning relationship between Yaz and the, and, and the Doctor, it seems like it fell out of the clear blue sky and come from nowhere. And there was no, re I mean, any anyone who's saying that it, it was always there is merely looking back in hindsight and connecting a whole series of disconnected exchanges between the two characters and building that into a, a blossoming relationship between the two of them. It, it's... Yeah. That's not organic, you know? I mean, if that's organic, I'd rather have a crinoid pod inject itself into me and become something else entirely. I mean, it, you know, I just, I, 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 I just, I didn't feel that the, his approach or the overall approach of the show really connected with an audience. And that's really sad because I, I wanted them to succeed. I wanted him to succeed and I wanted her to succeed. And who knows, you know? Down the track, we may reevaluate the entire approach and go, that was pretty good actually. But right now it feels like, they fumbled and bumbled and we're here now where people are looking forward to, uh, 18 months to the 60th anniversary and not wanting to dwell and celebrate Chibnall's contribution and Whittaker's contribution to the show. It just, it just feels really unfortunate and I, I don't want to feel like that. On reflection, even though I was initially, uh, and I'll, I'll use the air quotes here, positive uh, about the Jodie casting, I think, you know, on reflection, um, I was quite concerned because I didn't think that she had the, I hate using the word, the, the gravitas for the role. I mean, I really wish somebody like Ruth Wilson would have been marvellous to the role. Chibnall's writings had lots more misses than hits. And, you know, the audience starting from 8.8 .8 million and it's now down to 2.2. And even the catch-up figures for the Wedekind era are lower than the, compared to the Capaldi. I mean, you can't spin it and say it's been successful. I know audiences are fragmented and everything like that, but really... Uh, if you're getting beaten by repeats of, uh, what was it Bargain Hunt or, or whatever it was, or <laughs> Antiques Roadshow, yeah, there is something, uh, something not right. I mean, it, it, the fact that, uh, I think we might have mentioned this when we talked about it at the time that, you know, RTD was announced as coming back. The fact that the BBC is willing to hand over production of the show to a third party effectively to produce it for them hmm. indicates that, A, they see that there's, you know, inherent value in the show, and B, that you, that, you need a particular approach that the BBC can't provide, um, if I'm making any sense there. I mean, they wanted to succeed, but they've effectively said, well, we can't make it succeed. We can't bring the people in to make it succeed. We're going to hand it off to another organisation. And yes, you know, by some accounts, the money that's going to be injected into the show is uh, extraordinary, but... Um, the, the willingness to go back to a previous showrunner and hand it off to another organisation is slightly damning in a sense, A, for the B, you know, in, in regards to the BBC and also perhaps the current production. Look, you know, I don't want to be, look, I've been negative, obviously, but I, don't, I hate being negative because, again, making television is effing hard um, and no one goes out to make ordinary Doctor Who. And certainly, you know, during the Chibnall era, there have been some really good episodes. The one with the frog... I really love. People will look at me and laugh, but I, I love it. The the, the haunting of, um, of Villa Diodati is is excellent. But then you get dross like the Timeless Children, and you go, "What are you doing?" Um, anyway, anyway, I don't want to end this particular segment on a bad, you know, a down note. But 
I, I'm just a little bit disheartened that this sort of era is petering away. And uh, really, I mean, there are people out there who love this era and fantastic for them, okay? I mean, I enjoy the Colin Baker era, even though I know objectively it's not very good. And even though I, I think, you know, this particular era won't be as highly regarded as many of the new series eras, there are people out there who love it, who embrace it, who wanted, to, wanted it to succeed, and for them it has succeeded. So that's fantastic. And I feel sorry for them that there's a mm. whole host of people surrounding them pointing the finger and saying, you, you're, this is a failure, when mm. some aspects of it did work. I think you've watched half of it. I've watched about three quarters of it. So I can't yeah. say if it has worked, yes or no, to be honest yes. with you. But if I look at it from a, you know, a many lens approach where you know, you've got ratings, merchandising, everything like that, it hasn't worked. Even even publicity, it hasn't worked. And I get a sense of uh, of you know with this new casting and the future and everything like that. It's more of a case of uh, don't let the door hit you on the ass on the way out, Mister Chibnall. Which is well, not a way for it to um, to end the show exactly. But but to end this segment on a positive note, I I am as much as again a broken down middle aged man can be. I'm excited to see what uh, Russell T Davies, Bad Wolf Telly, all that Sony money. And Shooty Gadwa will bring to the uh, bring to this new era. But you know, I'm a bit disappointed though. I mean, the fourth Scottish doctor. Come on, what happened to the Welsh? <laughs> to the Irish? You know, give us give somebody else a go. Mark, you know, devolution only runs one way to Scotland, mate. I'm still convinced they've only given it to um, Shooty Gatwas because to keep the uh, the Scotlands as part tethered to the empire. Oh, yeah, yes. because uh, you know that revolution <laughs> slash independence vote is a coming. And uh, there's no there's no stopping it. Actually, I have a question then. If if mm. if, if Scotland eventually does become independent, mm. will, will will the BBC ever allow the casting of a Scottish person? Will Sylvester McCoy be allowed out of Scotland to come to the 80th anniversary? <laughs> I think he'll be about 102 at that point. But anyway, it'd be like uh, the episode of the Goodies. You know, remember like the episode of the Goodies where they got the they're trying to break away with those they're trying to push it away. Yes. Uh, from the <laughs> yes, from the mainland, that'll be probably yes. Yes, <laughs> you've heard our view now, and what we've uh, invited is a uh, friend of the show, Rob Lloyd, who's appearing in our top five master episodes to uh, give us his thoughts. So take it away, Rob. And like that, the fourteenth Doctor has been announced. Yes, Shooty Gakwa will be playing our favourite Rebel Time Lord. Now I'm sure. I would have been like a lot of you out there listening. When we heard the announcement that the 14th Doctor would be Shuti Gatwa, the first thing I did was to search up who the hell was Shuti Gatwa. And then I immediately chucked on the first two episodes of Sex Education and immediately fell in love with the charm, charisma, delightful personality and uh, energy and unique style of performance that is Shuti Gatwa. I've been indulging myself in all his uh, red carpet interviews with uh, Russell the Davies, and um, I've particularly enjoyed, as I'm sure you all have as well, uh, the seventh Doctor himself, Sylvester McCoy, with a propeller head coming out of the back of his head, uh, welcoming Shooty to the Doctor Who family, and then having Shooty reply with a uh, very heartfelt video message to uh, Sylvester McCoy, all the Doctor Who fans, and the other Doctors as well who have reached out. Um, I'm very excited uh, with this new casting and um, was quite surprised how it was done in quite a modern way for this old 44 year old uh, Doctor Who fan to get on board with a um, rather cryptic two love hearts plus sign and a blue box 
uh, Square presented on uh, Shirigatwa's Instagram page that was then shared and retweeted by um, Bad Wolf Productions. And just as the red carpet event started at the BAFTAs, they stole the show. Uh, the two delightful figures, um, Russell the Davies and Shooty, uh, doing interviews everywhere and the excitement just grew. I was kind of personally uh, uh, rooting for uh, a person of colour to take the role of the 14th Doctor, particularly um, uh, a person of colour uh, who identifies as male. Um, so I'm privately very happy in giving myself a little smug pat on the back. Um, I particularly liked how Russell and uh, was quite uh, supportive and caring of uh, Jodie's time and saying, let's all focus on her final story and, um, and we'll bore you all to tears and we'll annoy the hell out of you in 2023. So it's a very positive start. I'm focusing on all the positives. I haven't seen much of the negativity that some people are talking about. That type of stuff um, is stuff what I kind of want to step away from. I don't see it as any token gesture. I don't see it as um, uh, politics or anything like that. Um, anyone who uses the phrase Doctor Who isn't political clearly hasn't been watching the show. Uh, some of my favourite stories of the 1970s uh, had a very strong political message and um, and I love that about Doctor Who and I love that it's inclusive, it's uh, supportive and as Shooty said in a beautifully impassioned speech, it's a way of people being seen of all different types and all different um, identifications and that's a, the Doctor is a representation of uh, people who are not seen as normal <laughs> being able to be seen and having a voice, um, which I find incredibly beautiful and uh, warms both of this uh, old man's hearts. So, uh, yeah, thanks very much for your time. And uh, I'll send back to the cranky old bastards who I love more than anything else in this world. Keep punching! Thanks, Rob. Now, you'll be hearing very shortly our Top 5 Master Stories episode. Now, I do indicate that uh, as part of our 101st episode celebrations that we will be manacled together. Isn't that right, Rob? And yes. uh, working on a, a certain feature that uh, a lot of people love and we'll be dragging our way through a certain year. So you'll have to listen to the very end of the episode to uh, hear what year that is. I'm looking forward to it and we'll uh, catch you on the other side as it were. So nice to speak to you again, Rob. Thank you very much, Mike. Nice to speak to you and our and audience once again. Yes, and say it for one more time. Welcome to Doctor Who, Shui Genwa! Peoples of the universe, please attend carefully. Welcome to the latest episode of 42 to Doomsday. I'm Mark. And I'm Rob, but not the one that you're expecting. And in this episode, after more delays and Guns N' Roses' last studio album, we celebrate the 51st and a quarter anniversary of the Doctor's arch nemesis, the Master, making his, her, televisual debut by running through not only our top five stories uh, featuring this troublesome Time Lord, but more importantly, our listeners' picks. And a 42 to Doomsday uh, top five episode wouldn't be a top five episode without the return of a certain someone who has been involved in the majority of our top five countdowns since 2014. 
And to help us with this special, would you say masturbatory <laughs> episode, we welcome back friend of the podcast, Rob Lloyd. Welcome back, sir. How are you? It's an absolute pleasure to be here, and I hope that I am in 42 to Doomsday's top five of guests who have appeared on the show. Very interested to find out where I rank within your guests. Moving on, how you been? <laughs> I've been good, just finished Comedy Festival and just enjoying getting back on stage and being in front of people and making them laugh and cry. Now, you did a James Bond We did, a James show. Bond tribute with uh, yes. me and my comedy partner, Mr. David Innes. He's a huge James Bond Aww. fan. I'm a sort of like a James Bond adjacent uh, person, so I've been aware of Bond, but I've become a lot more interested in Bond over the last couple of years, and I've mm. gone back to watch the, the backlog. My dad's a huge Bond fan, fan so yeah. I've been learning from him a lot over the last couple of years as well. So yeah, we did a tribute to James Bond because it's the 60th anniversary this year of uh, the release of Dr. No. God. Yeah, as long as there's been James Bond movies, there's mm. been James Bond parodies yes. and comedy send-ups. So we wanted to find something different so we weren't becoming like Inline Flint or um, Austin Powers. Powers or anything <laughs> yeah, like baby. that. Yeah, baby. Yeah. 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 So um, so we did our, our story from the point of view of a henchperson. So the people that we root and support in this mm. show uh, the villains mm. and the evil, dark, menacing presence in the background mm. is James Bond. So yeah, so that was a lot of fun. It was great to get up. We had a lot of uh, James Bond fans and a lot of people who are aware of James Bond come along to see the show. So mm. yeah, we got some really good responses and that was a lot of fun. Did you see the last movie? The last Bond film? Did well, eventually, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. What did you think? Look, yeah, um, there were some really exciting parts in it. Mm. Um, I reckon they should have stayed in Cuba. Yeah. Um, that was the best part of the whole thing. Yeah. So it's like nicely wraps up the whole uh, Daniel Clay Craig era and we'll reboot, reboot the whole thing again. <laughs> I thought the explosion was the equivalent of the timeless children. I could see the uh, Barbara Broccoli and they're going, let's see how the fandom deals with this. Yes. yes. <sighs> Spoilers, by the way. And <laughs> yeah. top five Bond villains if we had to do them. Top five Bond villains. All right. Well, you've got to have uh, Blofeld in there, obviously. Mm. You've got to have uh, Javier Bardem. You've got to have from um, uh, Skyfall. Yes. Is amazing. Yes. Unironically, wow, it's hard for me to say, love uh, Jonathan Price. Yes. Uh, in um, Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes. So, and, but I think my favorite one is uh, Alex Trevelyan from Goldeneye. I think yeah. Sean Bean is is my favourite of the uh, Bond yeah. villains. And you? Well, Blofeld, obviously. Which I'd, Blofeld, though? Well, Who's... actually, I quite like Telly Savalas on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Ah. Isn't it? Yeah, I quite like him. Christopher Walken. Christopher Walken, <laughs> Walken in View um, uh, 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 to a Kill. Kill. Ironically, one of the best theme songs they did. And one of the worst movies. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Duran uh, Duran, it's an incredible song. It's an incredible it. song, and it's just a turd of a film. It is yeah. so bad. It's so bad. Uh, what else was there? Yes, I think uh, the guy from Skyfall, I can't remember his name, he was good. Silver. Yes. Long John Silver. I also like uh, Robert Darby in oh, uh, yes. License, in to, License Kill. to Kill. License to Kill is very underrated. Very I, quite underrated. Like I quite like the Dalton films, actually. I think I'm I only one of the three people who do. I like them as well, and so yeah. does Innes. His favourite uh, Bond film is Living Daylights. And the song's good, too. It is. Uh-huh. uh-huh. I mean, it yeah. caused one of the last things that caused John Barry to go, you know what? I'm done with this. I'm done. <laughs> he did not do well with Aha. No, <laughs> no. And Aha didn't do well with him. No. No, no, no. no. Oh, well, I'm glad it went well. And uh, can I ask you a question though yes. in terms of uh, Never Say Never Again canon or non-canon oh it is so non-canon Never Say Never Again is the Peter Cushing <laughs> films <laughs> but they're slightly better <laughs> yeah, well, they're, and they're just coming yeah. out in 4K I know it's fantastic yeah, isn't it yeah, really yeah. yes uh, you buy them again and they're doing um, 
special cinema screenings. They're definitely screening in the cinemas in the UK, mm. but uh, will they get a screening here? No. Will the Asta do it like they oh, did the for, the, might do for it. the 50th? That's the thing. I always go into the Peter Cushing's movies going, you know what? I'll just embrace it for what it is, and I'll be able to enjoy oh, it just for what it is. But every time I sit down, and as soon as Peter Cushing is referred to as Doctor Who, and he walks into his thing that he calls TARDIS, <laughs> I just go, no, nah, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. I try so hard. The second one is better. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Canon, Lan on. <laughs> now, speaking of Canon, Lan on, oh. it's how it should be an FM radio. Legend <laughs> of the Sea Devils. Yes. Now, you watched it. I did, and, and I wrote a review of I it. I know, and I read it with great interest. We're not going to repeat it word for word, but just some highlights for you of the episode. For me, um, I I love seeing the Sea Devils back, um, and I really liked sort of like the updated realisation of them. I loved mm-hmm. how they communicated without moving their mouths, and you could see like their... The, the pulsing in their necks and throats for how they spoke. So it was sort of like a really cool effect, which I really liked. One of the only things I like about Chris Chibnall's era is he brings in these uh, lesser-known figures from history. He doesn't do anything with them, but he introduces them. So you can find out more about, you know, mm. Madame Ching and all this type of these great figures from history that you read up and you go, these people are badass. I liked how they dealt with uh, the Dr. Yaz situation. That was good to address. And there was a great pace to it. There was a great fun energy to it. And I'm, I've been shocked. I've been absolutely shocked going, everyone, like people going, they couldn't watch it all the way through. They were like, there was this disdain and disgust and hatred for it about they're going, oh, it should have been 20 minutes longer and all this type of stuff. I'm there going, have you not seen any other Doctor Who stories? You know, the, there are so many other stories with bad pacing and cramming everything into an hour, and we kind of forgive those stories. And I don't know why this story in particular wasn't forgiven like other stories have. I've seen a, certainly a lot worse uh, Doctor Who stories. I've seen better Doctor Who stories, mm. but the hatred that this story has been getting online, I've just gone, are you serious? I thought it was a fun breezy, pacey adventure story. Maybe it's because it's getting towards the end. Maybe the that expectation of this should be something bigger. Kind of like the hatred that there was for the Eater of Light, which was mm. Capaldi's second last story and people, second last official story and people going, oh, and there was that expectation that it was Rona Monroe coming back. It's, yeah. it's the second last story. But can't really hit a souffle. <laughs> so yeah, that, yeah, that's my, I enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun with it. The shot of the TARDIS underwater with the with the uh, the school of fish swimming around mm. uh, and the murka not murka was 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 quite good. <laughs> non canon murka. <laughs> they going. Where's Ingrid Pitt? That was my thoughts, and I'm assuming. Well, as usual, you are the olive oil to my balsamic vinegar. Bring so, home the bowl. Look, um, I'll be honest with you. I'm probably gonna. I think I'm just gonna edit my review while I'm talking to you because <laughs> it's, a lot of it is not great. But look, let's just go through it anyway. Look, it carries on the, the tradition, the great tradition of the new series stuffs up another classic monster. Uh, the only thing that got right was a scream. The scream for the sea devil was uh, from the episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? The, yeah, moment when the sea devil dies, you hear, yeah, it's, you hear the scream. Yeah, so, um, although I thought it might have been Malcolm Hobbs screaming from the grave, because <laughs> uh, I got his name wrong. They spelt his name wrong in the credits. Mm-hmm. There are fans making the show, apparently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also the great time in um, the Matt Smith era when they had. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> when they, anybody remember Metabolus 3? Metabolus 3. <laughs> and there's no ADR, is there? Oh, my God. Anyway. I'd say it was badly acted, uh, oh. laughable CGI, and 
I actually found it really boring. Wow. And uh, I know I'm going to shock you again. I watched all the Flux and I watched the, uh, was Eve of the Daleks? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was awful and I thought this carried on the tradition. Wow. Of, of Did being... you like any of Flux? Oh, two episodes. Did you like the Centaurans? Yes. They were good, weren't they? And the Village of the Angels, I thought was quite Village good as well. Village of the Angels was pretty it was good. It quite good. The rest what about of it was, uh, Mr. McNally? He was... It was nice to see him in a decent story for once. <laughs> um, and, and not in a whatever gaudy costume he had for Twin Dilemma. Yes, uh, silver is not reflective uh, <laughs> in these today's age. Um, the wallpaper and paste of Doctor Who, as I call them, the uh, Jodie Whittaker and Yaz. The continue the on-screen, air quotes, magic. The love scene was... <laughs> Excruciating to watch, to be perfectly honest with you, Rob. I, I still feel Whitaker's Doctor is all over the place in terms of characterisation. I just I can't find a hook on it. I still think it's Tenet in drag. I do agree with what some people have said. It's the first modern Doctor that is heavily influenced by another modern Doctor. Hmm. So, obviously, Eccleston created his Doctor off his own back, and he had... And one, bitterness. And yes. bitterness. God yes. bless that man. Yeah. Tenet... Kept it under the radar until he'd been the Doctor for about a year and a half and mm. then he let slip how much of a massive fan he was. Mm. So he had all that history there. Matt Smith clearly did his homework and he's talked about it openly and he started out loving Troughton and now he, then he moved into Baker. So he had that classic homework. Capaldi, obviously, born-again nerd yes. after he burnt everything when he became an art student. But Whitaker has had that experience with the classic series, but she's clearly influenced by uh, David Tennant. But it's also that case of... I've said this before, for me, I see her as the modern equivalent of Peter Davison, as in Davison's fifth doctor came in mm. and for his entire tenure, for me, mm. he was consistent. Mm. He was the same in mm. every story. You get to his final story and it's because he was written by a master and so that's why it elevates to something more. Mm. With Peter Davison, there was no incredible highs, but there were no horrible lows the stories may have been all over the shop but you could always rely on him with Whitaker, she's been kind of the same she's been this same level of performance slightly performancey slightly upbeat but there's never been that moment that grabs you by the throat and goes this is the doctor but for me there's never been any moments that's been god awfully cringily horrible she hasn't found her place with the doctor which is a shame mm. she's kind of it's all been surface level but mm. it's been just the same. So it's kind of plateaued. So for the whole whole time, very much yeah. like... A bit Peter like her writings, they sort of plateaued and shrank. <laughs> yeah. I've tried. You know, I've tried. <laughs> so, <laughs> Have you tried? Have you tried? I've tried. I've tried. Now, the, was that Madame Chin? Madame Chin came and wanted to get a certain thing, and so she destroyed the statue. Then the statue came alive yes. and killed the father. That's right. The result of her actions caused the, the That's father right. to die. And then the son, basically, I hate you, all of a sudden, at the end, I'll hug you and I'll just join your crew. I saw the journey of it in the way of that the son learnt the whole story mm. and he didn't just see it as this and that. And he, he also learnt the humanity that she had. She was out to find her crew back, her children, and mm. so, and that she was protecting him. And so she saw the humanity of her. So it was a case of people going, well, he's going on along this way and changed. I could actually see the subtle evolution of that, of she, he understanding her and she understanding him. Usually the seven stages of grief are longer than 45 <laughs> minutes. There's only so much you can do within the confines of a... And my short attention span. Um, <laughs> Dan was left to the side a bit, which I think was a shame. When it comes to Dan, I haven't been completely convinced by Bishop as an actor. 
He's mm. a he's a quite uh, successful stand up. Yes, uh, but I've always find that he's a, emotionally distant with his characterization of Dan, and like as, as as opposed to the great Bradley Walsh, who was just inhabited Graham straight away and had this great range of sadness and anger and despair and happiness. It should have been a doctor, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> so there's only been moments for me where Dan's really connected. So John, for me. Hasn't he's quite a good stand-up, but he hasn't he hasn't had that emotional connection for me with Dan. Okay, it's interesting because I think because the other characters do nothing for me. He's the only stand-up for that me that I latch onto. Yeah, so uh, a bit like the Hooky War. I listened to another podcast, the Diddly Dumb podcast, the other day, and they were talking about the story. And I think it was Hayden who mentioned that it's a bit insensitive of Dad to wear a pirate hook when his on-off girlfriend has missing an appendage. <laughs> so uh, I thought it was a little bit of a you know a bit of a, uh, a slip there for me. I don't like watching Doctor Who and not enjoying it. That's why I actually stopped watching a lot of her eras because I just wasn't enjoying mm. it and I thought I was better to move away from it and just take a bit of a break. But I have been watching it, but coming out of it, I didn't like that more than what I actually say. I want to enjoy it and I want to like it. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like, because we've been with it for so long, uh, with a classical modern, some of us longer than, even, than I have, but that whole bias or weight that we put upon the showrunner in the modern era, and, and, and it happened in the classic era as well, especially post-Hinchcliffe mm. era. There was always this expectation of what a showrunner could do. Mm. From what I've heard about stuff, you know, Barry Letts just kind of did his thing. Him and Uncle Terry could do whatever they want, and that was the same with Philip and uh, Robert Holmes. Mm. But then once they left, there was that expectation amongst fans of what a showrunner should do. So Graham Williams had a lot of issues. John Nathan Turner had a lot of issues the longer he stayed. Mm. And that carried on over with the modern era. Mm. And there's been a lot of baggage connected with Chibnall, with his haphazard approach to the Everything, show. really? <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And like yeah. from someone who has created such a landmark popular mainstream drama hit with something like Broadchurch mm. to come into this with clearly no roadmap no. and clearly making steps. And he, he's openly admitted that in the most recent Doctor Who magazine interview. That's astonishing. Yes. Isn't it real? I, I mean... And I, the fact that he's yeah. saying that so openly. I've got no plan. I mean, I mean it's. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's, it was fascinating because uh, Russell the Davies, when he did season one, he was very open. Mm. Like he even did commentaries on season one, mm. and he made it quite clear that they were learning as, went as they were going. Yeah. But he had the clear outline of the of the year set out. He knew exactly what he wanted in story wise. Mm. But as they were filming, he would created this whole arc of the Bad Wolf thing. Mm. He's openly said that he had no idea what Bad Wolf was. They had their story structure, but they had to resolve it at the end of season yeah. one. So there's that case of he had the structure of what he wanted each story to be, but he shaped that arc as he went along. Mm. And of course, he refined that in season two, three, and four. Mm. Some successful, some not. But with this, Chibnall, Chibnall has openly said that I had no idea what I was doing. and I was, So he's taking these wild sweeps for no other reason than to destroy law and continuity just for the sake of making an impact so that he can be remembered for something. But it's caused a negative effect, and it's just built up this resentment and this bias towards him to the point now where I don't think we'll be able to look objectively upon Whitaker's era for a while. It's the same thing, like, even with, you know, season 10 of Capaldi. Capaldi's final year was in a remarkable achievement. It's great. Yeah, yeah it's really but good. there was so much... 
negativity that was carried over from the darkness of season eight, some of the missteps in season nine, though I think season nine is an incredibly strong season mm. as well. Um, so it's that case of, yeah, it will be interesting to see how we judge Whitaker's era mm. within the confines of the rest of it. So once we get, you know, the second coming. <laughs> I was just going to say, because we haven't spoken since the RT, yeah. R2-D2 news break. Um, <laughs> What did you think about that? Uh, yeah, I posted about it as well. I mean, he as a writer has evolved, mm. has evolved as a writer. And the stuff that he's been doing is landmark. Like, it's a sin and years and years. Is and so, the very British scandals. Very British scandals. Yeah, three incredibly right. powerful, yeah, good. popular, yeah. uh, devastating pieces mm. of drama. And mm. he's evolved as a writer over 10 years. He's in a different place. It'll be interesting. What And I think it's a case of, because he's such a fanboy. He finally gets to do an anniversary special. He wants to do it. And he needs to fix up what's happened. <laughs> yeah. And he is. He's editing the centenary special. Right. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, he's oh. fixing it up a little bit. But it's that case of, you know, the remember the doctor's half human. I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so we as fans are quite durable in what we accept as canon. And mm. you know, there's unlike I've talked about this many times, unlike with Star Wars or Star Trek or something like that, which was shaped by one mind then other people have taken off. You know, Star Wars was George Lucas and then they tried to give it to J.J. Abrams. Oh, my God, went, yeah. How about we actually, what fans have been saying for years, just give it to Dave Filoni, give it to Dave Filoni. And now Filoni's got it with Favreau. But with Doctor Who, it was always by committee. And it was yeah. just a case of the next group comes in, goes, mm. I'll take this, I'll take that, I'll take this, I'll take that. And so, therefore, we as fans are quite selective of what we accept as canon or not. Because there is no pure canon in Who. In my mind, there is. <laughs> and I then, know what you're saying. Yeah. I know what you're saying. And that, but yeah. that gives open... So your interpretation of canon mm. is different to my interpretation Absolutely. of canon. Yeah. And, and, and we as old, old <laughs> crudgy <laughs> bastards of Doctor Who have different yes. views of canon to Correct. modern fans. Absolutely, yeah. And they're more flexible. It's it. the only fandom that... So your opinion yeah. is right and my opinion's right. Exactly. Exactly. So the, yeah. And so... Every argument on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever on social media about that's it's not canon, that's pointless. not canon. Yeah, it's pointless because... You're cancelling every- each other out. Exactly, because everyone's yeah. right. Doctor Who is the perfect version of a multiverse. It's all in there all at once. Yeah. So. yeah. Oh, well, it's interesting. The Centenary Special, the trailer. Were you excited or were you... Mm, well, <laughs> let's get your... <laughs> Olive oil. Olive oil. Come on, you're the guest, olive oil. I I knew he was coming back, but I was disappointed um, with uh, the Joker Master coming back. Oh, he's awful, isn't he? Look, it's a shame. And have you (laughs) watched the box sets, Blu rays coming out? And I love the classic ones. Um, And I've gone back and re watched them during lockdown. Mm. And one thing I didn't get. One of the special features I didn't get, but I adore them now, is Behind the Sofa. Mm. Mm. I never really got it. Then I started watching them and went, these are friggin' amazing. Yeah. Some of the pairings are fantastic. And yeah. on the season eight box set, um, they had Sasha and his wife, who was uh, in Sarah Jane, Sarah Jane Adventures, right. and she was also in uh, the Nicole Tesla episode of Jodie Whittaker. Uh, yeah. And he's there <laughs> talking about... Like watching Roger Delgado, an incredible, you know, masterful performance of the master. Oh, he plays it very calm and very calm. I was very loud and bombastic, and 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 you go, David Innes and I there going, I don't think he realizes how bad he is. Yeah, he's, and it's a shame. He's quite a good actor, but he's just not a very good master. No, he's terrible, and he's dressed like the Joker. 
Yeah. He reminds me of Cesar Romero, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> like that same sort of plum costume and yeah, yeah, yeah I don't like him. So no. I knew he was coming back and I wasn't yeah. and I wasn't surprised. Yeah, the big surprise was uh seeing the return of two beautiful faces who I never thought would come back. Yaz and Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Graham yes. is coming back. Yeah, Graham is coming back. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. Um, yes. Uh, interesting dialogue. It was like, well, I haven't seen a doctor for 40 years. Well, I've seen him for 30. Oh, it's like, come on. Oh, look, look. You know. Yeah, it's, it's the same dialogue that was in um, a School Reunion yeah, with, with uh, Rose and... Rose yeah. and Sarah fighting over, you know, the yeah. boyfriend. Are you looking forward to watching it? Anything with Sophie Aldred in it, I'll, I'm very excited. Mm. Uh, Janet Fielding is a hoot, um, mm. so it'll be interesting to see how she goes getting back in front of a camera after so many, so years, many years and after yes. being a, a talent agent for so long. Yes, I'm looking forward to seeing the uh, demise of Jodie Whittaker's Doctor going out in a blaze of uh, rainbow-coloured uh, energy. Yeah, uh, the Fanta explosion, as I yeah, call it. Yeah. Um, I was thinking that mm. um, they're going, are they going to try and pull it off? Are they because they've started filming? Yes, that's right. They've yeah. got, exactly. They're they? on set. Yes. So it hasn't been leaked yet. No. Who the next doctor it's, is? It's there. He's. He, <coughs> it's there. <laughs> <laughs> they're filming the 60th specials very short. Well, I think they're filming them now. Well, yeah, yeah, I think they're on three, the three specials. Russell's back on yeah. uh, social media, which is very yeah. good to see. Yeah. Russell the Davies. And he sh- showed himself at the Carlet Studios. Mm. And there's rumours going around that they've set up, you know, Bad Wolf has got the big um, Sony, Sony dollars. Sony money now. Yeah. And they've set up a version of uh, the drum, mm. the, the technology that they use for the Mandalorian. They're yeah. using They're going, this is smart. This is how you make Doctor Who nowadays. Yeah. Even an old curmudgeon like me who was very disappointed when RTD was announced as a new showrunner, or new old showrunner. I'm actually looking forward to seeing what he does with it. Everybody says to me, Mark, he's done all this quality work um, since you left Who, but I always have that fear of, in my back of my mind, oh my God, he's going to do another Last of the Time Lord, you know. And then he got <laughs> Phil Collinson back, you know, it's like getting the old committee back without having that um, sanity check. But look, it'd be interesting to see what he does with it. And um, a, yeah. a big thing for me was Bad Wolf have done uh, doing this production of uh, the series, uh, His Dark Materials. Yeah, my wife's watching it and just loves it. Yeah, and yeah. I, I recommend it to all Doctor Who fans. It's If you'd seen the uh, Golden Compass movie oh, years yes. ago, <laughs> which was a disaster, Yeah, um, this is done, Julie Gardner, you watch it and you go, right, this is how they'll do Who. They've got incredible actors, mm. great money put into special effects because it's all HBO, mm. um, and uh, the soundtrack is incredible, mm. and they're going, that's how we do Who now. They know once they've got some money behind them. As Russell T has said, the BBC is dead. It was killed years ago yeah. by the government. And so it ha- the only way its property can stay on is within companies like Bad Wolf that will protect it and keep it safe. Plus any decisions they make are them editorially as opposed to the BBC who then have to say, oh, no, we, we can't do this, we can't do yes, this. Yes, which is like so, so controlled by the government stranglehold. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, policy. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. So it'd be um, interesting to see which writers he brings back. There's some yeah. great writers have been kind of left by the wayside from mm. previous seasons, like some of the writers within um, the Aussie writer Sarah Dolan, who wrote uh, Thin Ice. It'd be great to have her back. My favorite writer Jamie Matheson, who wrote Oxygen and mm. um, Mummy on the yeah, Express. Yeah, yeah. There's some really good writers that can. There are some actually good writers within the Whitaker era. Um, that should be given a second chance as well. Just oh, the wonderful writer who wrote uh, The Haunting of Villa di Lunote, Maxine Alterton. She's a great writer as well. There's plenty of good writers that Russell T should just pool his resources and bring in other good 
professional riders who can do good who exciting times yes now rob i asked original rob for his thoughts on the legend of the sea devils here is a transcript of the discussion that rob and i had so we're going to act this out so okay, i'm okay. going to be me and you're going to be other rob okay, right, okay. so let me let me just uh, channel other rob other okay rob, other rob rob okay <laughs> Um, horror Fang Rock. Hammer to Fall. <laughs> Did you watch the Sea Devils episode yet, Rob? I watched the first five minutes and then promptly checked myself into an institute for the mentally insane. Today, I happily occupy my days drawing caricatures of Chris Chibnall with my own feces, and I intend submitting one of these to the Archibald Prize for Best Portrait. So there you go. That's the continuing the 42 to Doomsday Fair and <laughs> balanced approach there. <laughs> but I think he's made his opinion quite clear. Absolutely. And uh, let's press on undeterred with our top five master stories. <laughs> hey! And now it's time to go through our top five master stories. I've got my top five. You've got your top five. I I've do. got all our listeners' entries as well. And we're also going to be dialing in Rob, uh, original Rob, I should say. <laughs> we're dropping him his, his top five as well. So, um, well, that'll be all happening as well at the same time. So uh, what we'll do is I will always defer to the guest in terms of who's going to go first. If we've got any snaps, we will obviously say snap and we'll just sort of give our points of view. Number five. My number five, drum roll please. The Deadly Assassins. Ooh, that's a snap for me, but the different positioning. Yes. For me, it's incredibly tight, high energy, tense story. It's iconic. So much Doctor Who lore is brought in. The the change of the Time Lords from being these omnipotent type of godlike creatures to being this decaying society of old curmudgeonly white dudes falling apart, not just going through these ritualistic ceremonies and not really remembering what it actually means is... Uh, is... Don't look at me when you say those things, <laughs> if you don't mind. It's just your eyes. Yeah. They're very <laughs> enchanting. Um, Baker is in fine form, mm. um, having the Castellan and um, the other lovely old character... Uh, helping him out is wonderful. And the master is very good. It, it's a different type of master. It's mm. that animalistic, bestial master who's mm. hiding in the shadows and is so vicious and um, really quite psychotic and evil. When you look at Delgado's performance, it's that gentleman menace. Yes. But you never think he's insane. You just no. think he is pure evil, and but there's no psychotic nature to it that's been brought in quite a lot recently. And it starts here. Mm. It starts here with the, the you know, the decaying um, hooded master that is out for, it's a lot more bloodthirsty and a lot more, yeah, psychotic. So it's not my ideal version of the master. Uh, once he starts going into psychotic serial killer type mood, it steps away from what I like about my version of the master is more that Moriarty mastermind as mm. opposed to just a random insane person. Such an iconic story and the dream sequence in the Matrix is incredible. It so. is, absolutely. And you mentioned the insaneness of the master, mm. you know, like unfortunately that a lot of those actors who've come after that have taken it to uh, turn up to 11 almost, haven't yes. they really? Which is a shame really because Pratt, even though he's um, under a lot of makeup and everything like that, 
what he does um, with his voice. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah it's really, really good. what. It's later on in my list. So we'll uh, we'll get back to that. But I, I like that one. It's a, it's a great, it's a great story. And what's your number five? My number five is the the demons. Ah, excellent. Yeah. So uh, now, I'm not too sure if you realise this, but concept, in season eight, every yeah. single story. Oh, was the was was Roger Delgado in every single story? every single story? I wonder so, how John Birch we found that. Oh, Apparently, he's a bit uh, threatened by that. Maybe is that true? A great man. <laughs> uh, so basically, you know, while some of the stories in that season are very alien invasion of the week, you know, sort of scenario, this one sort of breaks the mold a bit. I've actually got another pick in uh, later on in my list, which is from the same season. But um, you know, the master embraces his uh, inner vicar of Dibley, as it were, <laughs> uh, embeds himself in a community in a village as the Rever- Reverend Magister in Devil's End. And I just love the fact that he, you know, the master. Can you imagine the master in the confessional box hearing all this? <laughs> Gossip and you know who's you know shagging who and whatever you know deepest darkest secrets of his parishioners and uh, and then he's actually in, in terms of the villagers he's actually asse- assembling a, a crack troop of uh, rednecks and yokels that's right a bit like one nation supporters to do his bidding and in a way it's actually a lot more frightening for me that he's actually taking control of a small village and ostracised a lot of people well you know like um, Hawthorne and, and a couple of the unit people and in terms of that power. It's actually quite uh, frightening. It's very much a, a tribute to that um, very British version of sci-fi. Yes, from, from that sixties. Quite a uh, massy, seven, almost. A bit quite a massy. Yeah. It's got that whole um, uh, the writer of Day of, Day of the Triffids type yes. feel as well. That was brought to life so beautifully in uh, the part part three of the Cornetto trilogy in World's oh, End. Oh yes, World's the End, World's yeah. End, which is very much that small town menace. Yeah. Evil, uh, uh, that, that you know, the, the village mm. or the village. Again, he's very obsessed with obtaining uh, power and ruling the earth. I assume it's only a stepping stone to, you know, a usual universal domination. I think it's been talked about quite a lot. A credit to Delgado's performance that he has created such an endearing yes. villain yes. that you end an episode on a cliffhanger of the villain in peril. Yes. And yes. they're going... Would you ever see that in any no. other show? That the villain you are there going, oh my gosh, is the bad guy going to be okay? Exactly, it's for, wonderful for once. Exactly, and and in terms of his schemes, this one's actually quite lo-fi. Yeah, <laughs> it's actually quite like, oh, I'll just summon up this piece of you know, <laughs> whatever and see what happens. Stephen Thorne, will come Stephen back Thorne, and it exactly. Topless yeah. Stephen Thorne. You know the whole occult thing and everything like that. Delgado in that room, all the villagers and all starting to question him and everything like that, and then. All of a sudden, he sends up Bok to kill uh, Wednesday, and all the villagers turn around and said, "I better, you know, stick with him." <laughs> uh, you know, but it's fantastic. Look, from a Doctor Who perspective, though, it's definitely an overrated story. But from a master's scheming point of view, quite enjoy it. Yeah, and how Delgado relishes that whole occult and the, the oh, he's the made for it. Yeah, like in this the, the bloody beard, the pointed beard, yeah. and when he's in the red regalia, I've oh. got I've got that action figure set, which is the brigadier and the master in the full red gown, and mm. it's just such a great iconic version of um, yeah. of dear old Delgado. And it comes with a couple of uh, plastic pint glasses as well <laughs> at the end of the end of the story. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's a good master story. Yeah, I've gained a lot more appreciation. We talked about it when I one of the first podcasts I did with you guys was um, mm. uh, the John Pertwee era, and we talked about. Um, the Damons and how it's uh, picked up in my uh, estimation. Yeah. yeah.
It was a long time ago, that was. <laughs> We've been doing this a long time. Number four. Drum roll, please. I'm trying to get a bit of coverage, as many of the masters as possible. Okay. We'll find this. So I've, right. gone, I've gone for Pratt in the first one. Mm-hmm. Trying to think of what will be my perfect Ainley episode. Yep. Underrated story. And I think it is underrated because I think it is actually quite a good story. He was given so many pieces that he needed to fit into this story and he did it quite effectively so mm. that Robert Holmes had all the fun to do in the final story. Yeah. Planet of Fire. Oh, yes. It's a good Ainley master performance. Yeah. Um, because for most of it, he's in the, the suit. Yes. As opposed to the... The gear. penguin costume. Yeah, 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 the, yeah. Yeah, and so he's just in the, the white shirt, the black suit and the black mm. tie. There's this this swagger about him, like he, when he's in the the temple and he's claiming himself to be this the mm. the, the holy one. He does it with a swagger, which you mm. don't really see. You see Ainley is a bit more pompous and a bit of this caricature of what he perceived um, Delgado to be. Mm. But there's a swagger and a confidence and there's a good bond between him and Davison because they shared so much screen time together yeah. within the era. And that famous... Ending when he evaporates in flames mm. with the, you killed your own dot, 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 yeah. dot. And him playing, you know, he's chameleon struggling within himself as well. So there's a lot that Ainley has to do because Ainley is an incredible actor. The bits where he appears not as the master, he's great. He's great in Traken. He's great in uh, Castrovalva. Yeah. The less we talk about <laughs> time flight, the better. We both did at the same time. We're not... Although somebody I know who'll be dropping in has got to mention time flights. So, uh, <laughs> yes. Really? Yes. Oh, is that in his top five? Yes. Jesus. I like Planet of Fire. He had mm. to do, uh, Grimwood had to do a lot mm. to solve everything. Introduce a new companion. Say goodbye to Turlo. Say goodbye to um, the Master. Say goodbye to Chameleon. Get all this in there. It's, it's, it's a it's lovely... It's the JNT shopping list. Yeah. Again, and he went and, and did and it. He did it really well. Really and well, I think Ainley yeah. does very well in it as well. He's quite menacing as well. Like him um, menacing mm. poor old uh, um, Perry. Yeah. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a confident swagger about him and mm. that's not as hammy. He is still in that ballpark, but it's not as bad as not some as bad of as some of the performances. Yeah, yeah. sort of mention it later on is that J and T tells Anthony more steel, Anthony. You know, and of course he hams it up. Yeah, but when it's more steel, subtle, not ham. yeah, exactly. When he brings it back, there are some really good performances there. But unfortunately, you sort of think, oh god, times like King's Demons, certain extent, Five Doctors. And then it just gets worse. And then he sort of brings it back at the end. That's a good choice, though. And I think it's actually David Kitchen's uh, favourite story of the 80s. Well, there you go. Yeah, Yeah. I I like Planet of Fire. It's it's underrated. And uh, it's not wham, bam. No. But it's, it's a slow burn and it's a nice burn. As you said, that shopping list... If they only had one more story in between caves and that, it just seems to be like it was pushing everybody out. Yes. Yeah, that's why maybe it doesn't get the recognition it deserves, but also that DVD that they did that uh, special edition at the beginning no, of it. Oh, my God. So we don't talk about that. Okay, yeah. We don't talk about Jesus the special Christ. edition. Adding in the filming of the new scenes. We don't the talk heck? about that. What the heck was that? Not anyway, but... Uh, mm. That was Fiona Cummings? Yeah, she, she did it with all her stories. She did it with Enlightenment as well. Yeah, and, yeah, I think Enlightenment, she had more control, but this one was just like, no, 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 not, really, not, really. <laughs> not at all. Not really. Hey, Mark, what's your fourth story? Well, my fourth story, Rob, actually, is World Enough and Time and the Doctor uh, Falls. Now, well, uh, that's a ping. That's it, a ping. It's a ping. It's, it's a, 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 a snap, fire. It's a snapperoonie. So basically, I counted them. 
There have been 21 stories of the new series to feature the master, and they've ranged from good, hello Utopia, uh, awful, shite. However, um, World Map and Time and the Doctor Falls for me is not only the best master story of the new uh, series, it's actually the best story of the new series mm. that has ever been produced. We talked about Planet of Fire before. We had that shopping list of things that um, they had to do, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I can mention, you know, Terrence Dix was given one. Like you said, Grim Wade. Holmes was given one as well. Mm. Now, Mr. Moffat, when he's given the shopping list or when he actually creates his own shopping list, when he has to tie so many plot strands together, it's either going to be, that's not bad, or a complete mess, or now I've got to go to a Wikipedia page to understand what the hell is going on. <laughs> I did do that on the Big Bang, and I still have no idea what happened. However, in this story, he managed to um, surprise and delight on so many levels. Uh, John Sim came back, and he actually dialed his performance down, and it was much more subtle. And in this story, it was the only story I actually really enjoyed Michelle Gomez's Missy. Well, that's the thing where we're very yeah. different. Yeah, yeah. I, I adore Michelle Gomez as a performer, mm. what she brings to her roles in everything she does from book club to, to Green Wing to even the, uh, the new Sabrina series. Mm. I think she's a fascinating performer and I can mm. just watch her read the, the phone book. But yes, I'm aware that you know, she's not to your taste, but yeah. <laughs> Yes. This is, uh, in season 10 especially, all her appearances in season 10 and her work with Capaldi is outstanding. Yes. Her and Capaldi are a magnetic team. And then bringing Sims into that. Yes. All three of them just... Bounced off each yeah. other. And I think if you sort of look at the history of the program, I think that was actually the right time to do a multi-master story. As it were. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, this is going to sound ridiculous now, but when I was watching it, I had no idea... That Razor was John Sim. And yeah. he pulled off the mask. I actually went, oh my God. Oh, that's amazing. It's not amazing. That I, is, that's I don't know. Great. It's just a bit thick. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I was completely like blindsided what by Cliffhanger to World Enough and Time was really effective with the two masters sort of taunting yeah. Capaldi almost. With And then Bill comes out as a Cyberman. It's actually quite devastating. And Capaldi is a, you know, we've got a bit of man crushes beyond Look, with him. We have the biggest and man crushes on Such an awesome actor. He can sell that. Uh, anguish and the horror of what's happened to Bill. It was really interesting to see in that story where Missy was being pulled between, you know, the dark side and also she's trying to be a friend back to Twelfth Doctor. But, you know, John Sims there trying to egg her on in terms of going back to the old well, It's that whole thing yeah. of season 10 is about the master mm. reliving every murder, every plot, every yeah. horrible thing they've done and trying to find some recovery and redemption. Mm. And then to, it's the best step can a villain be redeemed yeah. or will their past dictate who they are forever? Absolutely, yeah. Powerful stuff. And yeah. just to have Sims be literally the embodiment of her evil past. And he's just going, what? Yes. <laughs> What's that become? Yeah, and in terms of like the new series, it's one of the very few stories I've actually gone back and watched. Great. Yeah, I think it, it's absolutely, you know, it's fantastic. And and even better is you get the, the genesis of the Cybermen. Yes. So much better than what Jerry Davis could have done in the 80s. It's just fantastic, you know. Yeah. And then the sad thing is, though, that it could have been the greatest regeneration story since Case of Androzani. And of course, what that followed up with, turned upon a time. Well, and that's, and that's <laughs> yeah. an, another thing where you are the balsamic to my olive oil. Yes. I, I adore Twice Upon a Time. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why I have you on. <laughs> Every year. Every, Every year. year. But, uh, in terms of that story, I think it's absolutely it's a, a supreme piece of drama and a really good Doctor Who story. Yeah. And um, yeah, to see Capaldi just firing on all cylinders, and the rest of the cast as well. I say this all the time. Mm. Um, we as fans did not deserve 
Peter Capaldi, and mm. we should be so grateful that we got him for the time that we did and what he brought to it over three seasons. Yeah. Just uh, someone of his calibre. Him in the show is like Patrick Troughton being in Doctor Who. You're just like going, these are people who are... Consummate can, professionals. Yeah, and can yeah. channel something deeper yeah. than any other actor. And make really crap stuff watchable. Oh, my God. <laughs> and that's the thing that's the problem with Whitaker is that she's had a lot of crap stuff, but the performance hasn't lifted it. Yes. You yeah, know what yeah. I mean? So you're not only stuck with crap material, you're stuck with a performance that's mediocre. So yes. it's sort of not a very good blend. No. A bit like International Rose. To the <laughs> when you go to a hospital, yes. International Rose Hospital Blend. Oh, not great. Not good. Not good. Now, it is not a good story by any shape of the imagination, mm-hmm. but you probably rated a lot higher than uh, their return appearance uh, quite recently. Um, but it is an incredible master story and it's an incredible master performance and it's a great doctor-master relationship in The Sea Devils. I love The Sea Devils. Yeah. yeah the yeah. original. Yeah. The original. <laughs> well, I love both appearances. Um, <coughs> I'm not even talking about um, uh, Warriors of the Deep. Come on. <laughs> there has to be a better way. <laughs> um, uh, the Sea Devils are sort of like Passengers in their own story. The main drivers of this mm. is that connection between uh, Delgado and Pertwee. The scenes in the prison, the opening scene is just how Delgado manipulates him into feeling sympathy for him yes. and how he just laughs it off. Uh, it's gorgeous. The sword fight is. <laughs> and he gets a sandwich. <laughs> the sandwich, beautiful. Yes. Um, yeah. Them fighting over control with the Sea Devils and trying to manipulate the Sea Devils mm. and these poor creatures. Not being caught able in the middle, to, yeah, they? caught in yeah, the middle of it, absolutely. And the great jokes, you know, the 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 clankers playing, and yeah. um, and the look on Delgado's face, yeah, it's just how he works with Pertwee and how those they were two characters meant to be together. You can tell the off screen friendship also has yeah. really sort of dovetailed into their working life yes. as well, so that it's given an extra. Oomph, as it were. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I just, uh, I adore it. It's a fun one to watch. It's one of the, I hadn't seen all of season two by the time that I watched this within my, you know, watching of the stories for the first yeah. time. So this one was a real surprise for me. Mm. It was one of my first master stories that I saw, actually. Mm. Um, and I went, oh, this is good. This is mm. great. This is a wonderful relationship. It's a shame this isn't explored more within the, you know, you kind of get... Oh, for every you know, for every uh, sea devils, we have to put up with <laughs> time monster, time monster, <laughs> or or um, colony in space, yeah, or even God forbid, claws of Axos, where there's no development of their story, no. but there are other such no. powerful relationships built. And it's a shame he died because I think if you look at what could have been with Planet the Spire, is yes. where it just could have brought that next level to it, and with the the, the sort of the, the, the pathos of. Her leaving as well, yes. both leaving, it would have been incredible, I think. Of any Doctor era, sharing that final mm. end with both actors would have been very poetic. So yeah, Sea Devils is my number three. Just There's so many fun moments between the Doctor and the Master, and it's so much a case of they are the mirror image of each other. You've got, for me, like Capaldi and Gomez are the perfect Master-Doctor pairing, and mm. same with and the equal perfect for me is... Mm. Pertwee and Delgado. So where does Ainley sit in terms of Doctor pairings, do you think, in terms of his era? Ainley, for me, is... His appearance is mostly associated with Davison. Correct. But I think he works probably best with Baker, especially in Mark of the Rani, just because they're just... How they play the Time Lords as these two pompous hams, and they're dealing with humans... As if they're nothing, and they just go, "Well, oh, I'm indestructible. Oh, well, I'm indomitable." And 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 Kate and Mara, they're going, "You're both idiots." 
and doesn't in one scene like Colin Baker sort of bumps into him and, and yeah. yeah, it's just like... No, the bullyish and... <laughs> it's blah, like, blah, blah, what blah, is blah, going blah. on there? So that, okay. that's kind of adorable for me, but yeah. he, for me, he is closely associated with Davis and Ainley relationship. And I think, you know, what you said about Planet of Fire is absolutely spot on, I think, as the best performance. Yes. From, from that era, yeah. as it were, yeah. Okay, cool, excellent. So what about you? You didn't need to be prompted there. It's seamless almost. It's almost like we're in the same room. My number three is uh, Logopolis. Hey. Uh, a new body at last. The, <laughs> the official debut of Anthony Ainley's Master. Along with Survival, this is probably for me. And actually, in retrospect, when I was writing this, Planet of Fire is... Probably in here as well, but I didn't actually have it down in my top five. I did a bookmark between Logopolis and Survival in terms of Ainley's best performance. Uh, and as I mentioned before, you know, J&T was, unfortunately, during Anthony's uh, time on the program, was shouting, more steel, Anthony. So, of course, when you're hearing that cue, you're hamming it up, really, uh, which is a shame. Basically, this master doesn't waste any time. Basically, he's got a new body at last. He now sets up a trap for the Doctor, but I'm also going to try and take over the universe Again, in this story is that his overconfidence, which in Logopolis where he, you know, he pauses the computations and he tries to turn it back on again, he goes, oh, hold on, there's <laughs> a bit of silence here, something's going on. He just basically, after that, the whole thing goes to pot, you know, the en- entropy ensues, and then watching Tom Baker's absolute distaste of sh- taking Ainley's hand and shaking it. Yeah. And turning away when they know they have to work together to um, to try and resolve the issue. And it's really interesting that Ainley, when he's typing in on the light speed overdrive, <laughs> he's absolutely <laughs> sort of, you know, Adric in their shock is sort of like stepping away from stepping it. Away yeah. from he is as like, he's like me with IT equipment and he's just pressing <laughs> each button down I'll very, very hard. I'll press this down. I? Just that performance actually really interesting. But in terms of the master's actions in the story, if you sort of think about it, and unfortunately wasn't conveyed enough, I don't think, in Logopolis, where he's caused us so much devastation. The Trakan Union has gone. Mm-hmm. Entropy has basically gone across a certain portion of the universe. There's bodies everywhere. Yeah. But it's sort of glossed over. You know what I mean? It's, like it's, well, yeah. it's, it's, it's very much... It's how they did it back then. It, no, it, well, it's it's very much a case of it's a dear Christopher H. Bidney, who you know, the man who is an incredible writer and a incredible debt to Doctor Who. Just mm. ask him. Look, he's very good with scientific ideas and making yes. it serious, but he does not have, know how to. He goes, look at this interesting idea, and then they're going, "That's great," but you do realize this is the last time that we're seeing mm. this character who's been mm. with us for seven years. And Christopher goes, yeah, sure, but I've got this really clever idea. About and a TARDIS and the TARDIS and the yes. TARDIS. And yes, and see I, how clever I am? It's not about you, Chris. And so for me, there's that, you know, just everything is, yeah, done so matter-of-factly going, well, Trakin is gone. And Nis is there going, my whole people are wiped out. And goes, yes, they are. You're yes. in the body of my dad. Yes, I am. <laughs> and you're just there going, Chris, <laughs> who hurt you? <laughs> <laughs> to the point of not showing any emotion. Yeah. So for me, the menace is so distant from actual emotional connection. Mm-hmm. There's all these great moments. Like Tom is acting out of every orifice of his body. He's beautiful yeah. in his final story. Um, in that final season, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's, it, it, the yeah. stages of Tom is great yeah. to see. But for me, I don't have that as much of an emotional connection between him and Ainley because Ainley is so much performing it as opposed to inhabiting it. I don't yeah. feel those. Yeah. I, it's so performancey as mm. opposed to feeling that. 
And so, especially when you've got that little subtlety between Delgado and Pertwee that you yeah. can feel so much with just a look or a grin yeah. or a, a pause, whereas Ainley is so... He's, he hadn't settled into the role no, completely. No. But, yeah. It's, yeah, they try to set up this tension and the disdain. Uh, I think it's more... Baker doing the heavy lifting. The heavy lifting. Yeah. But in terms of the master and the body count, it's pretty impressive, that one. It like, it's massively and that, impressive. And, and that should and be played on it. Exactly. But, but if you do play on it, it takes away from Chris H. Bijmi's wonderful ideas. Yeah. You can you imagine, though, if that was now in the new series, you have Mantovani gold, you know, going, oh, 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 you know, also <laughs> Castrati will be out. There'd be gnashing of teeth and tears. Oh, like, yeah. everything's gone. But uh, it was so understated, he's basically cancelled out a quarter of the universe. Yep. And it's just like, yep, yep that's it. Let's yeah, just yeah. move on. So, uh, in terms of the master shenanigans, uh, and body count, that's definitely in there. It's it, like it, the diehard of, uh, of the master, <laughs> of the master it stories. It is very, very high. Yeah, very, very high. Number two. My number two is one that you mentioned earlier. It mm-hmm. is World Enough and oh, Time Snap-o. and the Doctor Falls. Yeah, number very two good. for me. Yeah, um, everything that you said, I totally agree with. It is a masterpiece of modern Who. I find that Moffat can do incredibly good stuff when he's given a shopping list, but he gives it to himself. I know your thoughts on the day of the Doctor, but he was given a, a, a list there, and I believe that he did some incredible things with that. But this one, he had his own shopping list that he mm. had to resolve. Yeah. And he did his resolutions within the Capaldi era weren't that strong. I think he kind of lost his way. I know you didn't understand it, but I, I think he's only good season finale up until that point was Big Bang. <laughs> okay, I've got a piece of paper. I've got some butcher's paper in the corner. I'll, Can you work for get, me? I'll get Dr. <laughs> Emmett Brown and a blackboard. Please do. <laughs> and so he struggled quite a lot with season finales, but then he you know, topped his best effort with Dr. Falls. And that, yeah. that two-parter with World Enough and Time is just incredible. Everyone's firing on all cylinders. He mm. uses his concept, which he liked exploring so much, of time, but it actually works in this. He takes a complicated time concept and connects it to an emotional level. Yeah. You're hearing me, Christopher H. Bidmead? <laughs> no, you're too busy with your head. On Twitter. <laughs> On Twitter. Yeah, it's just yeah. a masterpiece. And to see the struggle of Gomez, the callousness of Sims. Russell T. would always sprout it going of that the master is the mirror image of mm. the doctor. So his John Sims... Master was a mirror image of the big, bold David Tennant Doctor. So to see him here mm. without that restriction, mm. he brought in this calm, nuanced, menacing, ice cold. And maybe it's because he's acting against type. You know, yeah. so basically he's not acting, he's not supposed to be the mirror image of Tennant. Yeah. He's actually acting completely different to an older Doctor. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe that that's obviously... Played into the into the performance as well. What was so important about season ten was Gomez and her arc. She knocked it out of the park in so many different elements of season eight, nine, and especially in ten. And she went on this journey with with Capaldi. So to see how that all came to a head and have it such a sad ending that in the end they just wiped each other out. Spoilers. To see that sad oh, ending of just both. Sims and Gomez sliding the floor, go yeah, and and the mask <laughs> yeah. and the and the doctor not being able to know that in some small way she did redeem Something, herself, yeah, yeah, that he never, yeah, those type yeah. those type of things, which is great storytelling, just mm. those those little elements of sadness, yeah, like you know that element of sadness of going Nardole is just marking time, mm. 
and you're going, oh God, little elements of sadness. Gomez is is has never better. Um, and I, but I adored all her appearances as the master. Um, Sims redeems himself because I didn't like him at all in any yeah. episodes. He was handed by a really bad script. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it was just basically more steel, John. Yes, uh, yeah. and to have him back in an entire episode mm. where he's in disguise, yeah, in a very Ainley or <laughs> Delgado. And Fico here didn't know. <laughs> so yeah, it's my number two. I think it's one of the most powerful. Let's uh, watch it now. Yeah, let's, let's, let's watch it, it again. Let's do it. Let's do it. I actually think that was the peak of the new series. Yeah, and then yeah. <laughs> so my number two is the Mind of Evil. Well, this is going to be a spoiler. Ping pong. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I, that's one of my It's one of yours as well And seeing I've only got one to go <laughs> I don't get it, stop We'll work on that <laughs> So basically, you know The Master's first attempt At taking over the work By the Nestines, of course mm-hmm. I don't know whether you know Spoilers It didn't really sort of turn out that way <laughs> um, What a better way of Destroying the world Than actually setting up The, the superpowers Or the nations Against each other yeah. Especially the petty humans And uh, really, you know Sort of think about You know, cry havoc And let's let the dogs of war on us nice. Unit in the story They've sort of switched From paranormal investigators to security detail yeah. which they do in Day of the Darks as well mm. but they so, go where they're needed a little bit like Scooby-Doo gang really, aren't they? <laughs> and again the master's adopting another pseudonym but not really changing his appearance bit of a character flaw there there is one oh no that's no that's Terror of the Ordons when he puts the, ma- the mask on with the um, the mask of a, a guy with a beard and he takes it off and it's a guy with a beard guy with a beard and it's a really ill-filling mask and he pulls it off and goes hello governor <laughs> uh, like that you know the master you know, using the Keller machine to drive that wedge between the delegates on, on that um, peace mm. mission. But then the interesting thing is that that the, the machine, when it's used against him, his greatest fear is the oh. Doctor. Now, sort of thinking about this, he's only really had one, well, if you sort of think about it, a televisual appearance as the Doctor, right? Now, after one story, you wouldn't think he'd be totally scared. However, this is where I think the Fanwank equation comes in. There's obviously some um, history. Fan wank happening beforehand, where mm. he's obviously is very scared of the Doctor. Mm. I mean, I do enjoy the down to earth approach of the, of this uh, of his plan. But the only issue I have with this is that um, if the Master didn't get the dematerialization circuit off the Doctor and war did break out, he'd be sitting in his TARDIS for about forty or fifty years <laughs> waiting for the actual fallout to pass. But um, well, like Michael Caine says in The Dark Knight. Some men just want to watch the world burn. The master fears the doctors think he's a bit of a pain in the bum. Yeah. To be honest with you. And I sort of mentioned this and I think our top, uh, was a top rated unit stories podcast. Yeah. I mentioned this story to throw back to season seven. But I was sort of thinking about this again today is that can you imagine Inferno with Delgado Master playing Stallman? Oh, wow. And trying to convince everybody that yes. this guy is, you know, yeah. someone from another planet. It might need another two episodes at the end of it to try and get it all in. Yeah. But like, if you sort of switch out Stormin, you could potentially... Like, I mean, I did that um, book about years ago. Uh, I think it was David McKinty wrote it. It was basically like an alternate version of Inferno where the master was there. It was a Kaboshi. I can't remember his name. But anyway, but yeah, it was quite good. But so I was just thinking, if season seven was still going and I said, well, being the master in earlier, I, I could see him in that season being in Inferno. Yeah. Hello, written... big finish. I want the royalties. <laughs> well, it's written by the same guy. It's Don Horton. Well, yeah. there you go. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I like Mind of Evil. It's a really good story. And I just like how he, instead of like having Alien of the Week turn up and try and stuff things up, he basically said, I'm going to blow up the world by setting them against each, each other. other. Yeah. And here's my little bit of machinery to sort of help things along the way. And Puff the Magic Dragon's going to make an appearance. <laughs> 
he left on Ali just to come here. He did actually. Yes. But yeah, well, for for me, uh, surprise, uh, it's my number. number one. It's my favorite uh, master story because Delgado is at his best. He plays Gone of the Silly Disguises mm. and Hello London Gangster. He's in the immaculate suit. It's snatch, isn't it? And he's, yeah, it is. <laughs> and he's got the cigar. Yes. And he's got the menacing music playing on the radio. Then he turns it off. He's just oozing, oozing that yeah. that London gangster feel. His his interplay with with Pertwee is second to none. Yeah. They have so many great interactions where they're toying with each other, playing this game of chess mm. um, at the desk, and the gun is pulled. I'll shoot you in both your hearts, and yeah. and and. Pertwee is so cool going, oh, why wait? And all this type of stuff. But then you see the real desperation. And yeah, you do see that case of the master needs the doctor more than the doctor needs the master. So you mm. see that type of dynamic that there's been Happening. there for years. Yeah. Fan wank maybe. But how desperate and how panicked the master is when he fears the doctor's dying mm. and bringing him back to life and how relieved he yes. is when he's alive yes. is powerful. Um, his manipulation of the people he has under his power mm. is really quite menacing. Um, the scene at the end when, <laughs> when he does the, uh, well, my, and he does the driving the car is aimed and ready to fire. Yes. There's some beautiful moments there. Yeah. And you believe the doctor at the end. Oh, no, at the end, he, he <laughs> I get it mixed up with the other one when he goes, I'm going to enjoy it. That's it, the end of um, Autons. But this yes. one, he goes, I'm here with you, Brigadier. Yeah, the master gets away. So he he wins the day in the end. He gets his dematerialization circuit. But his relationship with Pertwee is really good in there. And his relationship with uh, Mela is yes. really good as well. Yeah. And he's just so suave. And he's just so cool in that. I think it's, you know, prime Delgado. It's interesting, though, because, like, one minute he's doing nuclear war, one minute he's doing alien invasions, next thing he's trying to do Magna Carta. <laughs> there's, no, there's no rhyme or reason. Yeah. Like, the Magna Carta's law, I was just going to take the piss out of this. Yeah, just, yeah, just do yeah. it to annoy some people, you know, and get a, get a crazy robot in. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yes. get a robot, that's fine. Yeah, yeah, and that playing humans against humans is really mm. good. And also, it's a grim story as well. In many ways, it's got this nihilistic view of humanity with all the evil and fear and yeah. sucked into this machine and, it, and and that can be then used as a weapon against humanity yeah. is, is grim stuff, but there's mm. a, it moves at a great pace and you see that desperation when he is being attacked by his own. And the sound effects too, you know what yeah. I mean? Like the whole build-up of it of as well. Just that... Yeah. It's so menacing. And he commits to it. You believe mm. the fear in him. Mm. And when he looks at that, and he's like, the thing he does with his hand, he's like the tension and he squeezes his hand and yeah. opens and closes his hand as he's trying to gain control. Mm. And he sees that menacing view of the, the doctor over him. It's, it, it's, it's powerful cool. stuff. It's yeah. great stuff. It's Delgado working, you know, working hard. So Mind of Evil, do you prefer watching in colour or black and white? Yeah, I watched it for so long in black and white. Mm. Um, and the the Blu-ray edition of it is is immaculate. So mm. the purist in me wants to watch it in colour the whole time because, well, that's how they watched it in TV in the really expensive <laughs> houses that had a colour TV. In I did <laughs> um, But yeah. it's just as good in both, yeah. black and yeah. white and colour. There's yeah. some great stuff to be had. And mm. like on the VHS release when they had the little special features. Oh, yes. Again, the hint... The little tantalizing little moments where to go from Six black minutes. and white to color and then back in yeah. black. 
very beautifully done. Oh my god, amazing, isn't it? It's only like twenty years ago. Yeah, it came out on VHS, and now it's like it was color, and they said the little little taster, Easter egg, fade in color, yeah, fade yeah, back yeah. out, and now it's it's on your bookshelf in full color. In full color, it's it's bonkers. It's insane with how mm. far we've gone, which yeah. has helped uh, us Who fans imaginably. Do you prefer the colour or the black and white? I saw it in black and white first time. Yeah. And the same with the demons and Terror of the Autons and Solarians and quite a few of them. Actually. <laughs> um, but I do enjoy watching them in colour, but then I'm also the free song of going back to the good old days of <laughs> watching them in black and white. That you know, especially, you know, Ambassadors of Death as well. Nobody ever saw it. Yeah. Um, you know, watching that Pertwee run of the, of the 1986, which was how many years ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're the teacher. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah. I think the demons works better. Yeah. I think in black and white. Well, yeah. So for me, Mind of Evil is my favorite master story. It's written mm. by John Horton, mm. who's one of my favorite ever who writers, and mm. he only ever wrote two stories. And yeah. then my two, in my top five, uh, Pertwee stories, Inferno and um, Mind, of, Mind of Evil. Yeah. They're in my top five. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And now it's time for you. I've done my one. What's your number well, one? And you've already mentioned. Yes, yeah. we had a bit of a snapperoni on this, so it is again. My mind is actually the deadly assassin. Ah. So, um, so basically, Delgado unfortunately is dead, um, yes, is. but it's not a problem. They'll bring him back as a shriveled up old prune. Uh, <laughs> for me, this is my favourite master story, and it's actually one of the favourite stories for me from the Tom Baker mm. uh, era. You mentioned before the master was reduced to the shambling, you know, state almost yeah. where. You know, Delgado was stocky, handsome, and, and, and you know, full of confidence and, and menace. And, and flirting with Ingrid Pitt in absolutely, Atlantis. Absolutely, as, as we all do. You know, and now he's just this shambling wreck of a, of a cadaver. Yeah. Basically, only hate is keeping him alive, as it were. <laughs> Basically, he's just trying to renew himself and just keep himself going, as it were. And, you know, if he can do this by any means possible, and also including throwing the doctor under a bus, then it's all, it's all <laughs> positive. Like you, I thought... Pratt was fantastic as a master, and the the, the makeup and, and and the costuming for 1977 is still pretty impressive today. Yes, I know the eyeballs look a bit funny, but you know, God, it's actually quite a gruesome look. Well, it's really interesting because it is like mm. it, it is a mask, yes. and so it's meant to be his face. So it's, it is both his face and a mask. Yeah, but I believe it. it his face is literally frozen in this position of yeah. just. You, the teeth don't move, the eyes don't move, his yeah. face is, he is so Stop. decayed that yeah. he can barely move, he has no facial expression, it's just mm. a pure anger and hatred that yeah. is locked in there. It's almost like he's working for the Republican Party. <laughs> uh, you know, the Master, again, uses somebody's ambition for power for himself, you know what I mean? So Goth, obviously felt he should be president, sort of yeah. entitled, a bit like the guy from the Sea Devils, the governor, yeah. you know, uses that sort of, um, I've been wronged in some way. He'll just basically take that and run with it, as it were, and use it for his own means. People yeah. are just puppets to him. Or, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I think the story, you know, you mentioned before, the Matrix scenes are fantastic. Mm. Not the latest Matrix film, <laughs> you know, the, but the <laughs> Matrix films are fantastic. And in terms of that story, it actually works better for not having a, a companion in there. Yeah. I think having a Sarah Jane or a Leela in that story would actually uh, constrict it a lot. But just having, you know, the focus solely on the Doctor... And the Jeopardy, he's got nobody else to sort of help him get him out of it. Yeah, and especially because, yeah. you know, the last time we saw him uh, is Frontier in Space. And there's some wonderful moments in there where you finally see an end to the arc of 
the master's relationship with the companion, with Katie. Mm, that's right. With, with Joe Grant, because in the first story, he immediately hypnotizes her and takes her over to kill the doctor. Yeah. And, but in their final appearance together, she is strong enough now to stop his power. Yes. And that's a beautiful moment. Yes. But that takes time. That takes, you know, three years of work uh, with great actors. So to mm. just focus on, let's just have this relationship between the Doctor yes. and the Master. The, Holmes's um, view on time law society at the time was uh, controversial. <laughs> but now in retrospect, it's quite subtle and nuanced compared to the car crash that was the... Uh, the Turtless Children, as, uh, <laughs> as I know you're a big fan of. The, the master works so much better when his, his back is against the wall. He's desperate for, for survival, desperate for so many things to happen. And when it's served up with a nice dollop of revenge on top, you know, this is a story for me in well, terms of the, the, the top, uh, my top master story. So yes, My five, you you're one. Now, I've got some notable mentions here. Yes. Now, I think you mentioned the most before, though. So obviously, Planet of Fire, mm-hmm. uh, Survival, Terror of the Autons, and The Sea Devils. There's a fantastic book called The Harvest of Time by Alistair Reynolds. Have you read it? I have not read it. It is absolutely fantastic. It captures the uh, Delgado-Pertwee relationship and a story of that era beautifully. Was there a virgin book as well with just Unit and The Master? There was. There was. I, I think remember. there was. Yeah. I think there was. I think it might have been that Parallel Universe one. I think it was... Oh, I can't remember what it was. But I know that was the most recent book I read and it was really, really good. And I know Last of the Ganymede by Mark Gaddis was quite good as a book. But that, that Alistair Reynolds book just captures beautifully the, the Pertwee era. Yeah, notable exceptions for me. I'm, I'm glad I got to mention... Um... Time flight. <laughs> <laughs> Why is he still in the costume when nobody's around? Oh, I don't know. Why is he covered in green snot? Why is What's he covered in green snot? There's some great stuff in Frontier and Space. Yes. Where, and the way that um, Delgado is, he's funny and... His, you know, his relationship with Joe is great. His relationship with the Ogrons is great. Him and Pertwee, of course, are amazing. I actually quite like the relationship between the Master and the Doctor in Scream of the Shulker. Oh, how right, that, yes. How the Doctor mm. has the Master as like this, uh, it's the, this robotic representation. That Alfred. Yeah, <laughs> Almost. can't leave the TARDIS. Yes. And, you know, Derek Jack would be doing a wonderful job with the voice there. Yes. Those moments, those scenes, much has been said about the, uh, the phoned-in performance of Richard E. Grant and that, but his scenes with um, uh, Jacoby are actually quite good. And, you know, you know I've, got a, I've got a nice little soft spot for Eric. Yeah, more <laughs> camp than a row of tents. Yes, yeah. yes, uh, <laughs> yes. The carry-on master. Beautiful, you know, beautiful moment with Bruce, you're sick. Y- yes, he's, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's he's aged well, hasn't it? Really? Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like the thing Anthony Ailey going. I think I'm going to play this uh, quite camp and over the top. <laughs> Eric Roberts goes, hold my beer, <laughs> hold my ham. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, if if anyone can bring someone back and make them do 27 box sets, it's big finish. And even they have got a master who they cast and they don't talk about Ooh. James Drapers. Yes. Which one's James Drapers? He was a pre. Hold on, let me get this straight. He appeared in some big Finnish uh, stories with the uh, other non-canon first doctor, David Bradley. Ah. But then it was a bit of a, um, a difference of opinion. Right. And uh, uh, yes, big Finnish decided to let him go, but not really let him go. Didn't tell him, yeah. Well, I thought there was only ever one master on big Finnish. Oh, no, there's about course. 118 of them. But there's only one, Jeffrey Beavers. No, Gordon Tipple. <laughs> <laughs> He's my favourite Tipple. Oh, hello. I appear to have gotten stuck touching this grandfather clock in this antique shop. 
Well, while I'm waiting to die, here is my top five master appearances. Starting with two honourable mentions. First off, Professor Yana is the master. It's a damning indictment that Jacoby's 90 seconds as the master outshines the collective runtime of all the modern masters, but there you go. The power of the performance comes from the stark contrast between the kindly Yana and the vengeful and insect-hating reawakened master. If only we'd had this master instead of whatever the hell John Sims thought he was doing. And my second honourable mention is Anthony Ainley under the Khalid makeup. Time Flight deservedly comes in for its fair share of stick. Indeed, if this were a J-horror movie, you'd chop off its foot, stick it in a sack, then feed it its own vomit, just to make sure it gets the punishment it so richly deserves. That aside, what positive can we take away from this dog of a story? Of course, Ainley's over-the-top performance is the cosmic wizard Khalid. Amidst all the plasmatons, dodgy CSO and teeny tiny soundstage, not to mention you can see Peter Davison visibly realising perhaps Doctor Who isn't quite for him, Ainley's gibbering, nonsensical Khalid remains a firm favourite in this household. And now, our top five. Eric Roberts is the master. The better-looking Roberts sibling absolutely grabs the Vancouver scenery and takes a big wet bite out of it as he dresses for the occasion and almost steals the TV movie from Paul McGann. Robert cops a lot of stick for his movie choices, but it is clear in his appearance here that he is relishing the opportunity to play the role close to the knuckle and also unleashing when the occasion demands it. His master is a sinister sociopath, a Time Lord operating right on the edge of existence, willing to do anything to live. John Sims' master in World Enough and Time slash The Doctor Falls. Thankfully, thankfully, we can forget the RTD version of The Sims Master, through the use of psychedelic drugs, a hammer and a small ferret of course, and instead embrace the Moffat version. John Sims's iteration of The Master in the RTD era was utterly awful, a gabbling maniac with all the subtlety of a hammer to the testicles. Instead, it took the brilliance and subtlety of a Moffat script, operating on all cinders even at the fag end of his reign, to reintroduce and reinvent the Sims Master for a new generation of jaded fans. Moffat takes all the tired old tropes of the only master, elaborate planning and crazy disguises, and morphs them into 21st century brilliance. Sims, a consummate actor, takes the opportunity offered with both hands and brilliantly portrays a role of two halves. The kindly-ish character Razor, leading Bill by the hand to her doom, and the triumphant master, willing to do all sorts of unmentionable things with his female alter version. Jeffrey Beavers is the master in The Keeper of Traken. The seduction of Cassia, first as a teenager, then as an adult, is probably the most heinous thing the master has ever done. The very personification of dripping poison into someone's ear. In fact, everything that befalls Traken from this moment to Logopolis is down to the effect the master had on Cassia. Beavers' master, aside from having the sort of voice one could just sink into and luxuriate forever, is adept at playing the long game. And not only that, proves himself to be something of a cancer in Traken society, first as an innocuous statue, then latterly as a disease raging like wildfire, undermining the very foundations of the civilization. This is a master who plans, and plans well, and his final horrifying trap, capturing, taming, and finally overwhelming Tremas, is something all fans should reflect on with a shudder. Anthony Ainley learns to be subtle in survival. After Anthony Ainley's delightful performance in Keeper of Traken, where he indicated he seemed to be an actor who would be an ornament for Doctor Who, his slide into camp buffoonery in stories like Time Flight, or irrelevance in stories like The King's Demons, was a sad sight to behold. It's bad when you know someone has the ability, and demonstrates again and again an inability or unwillingness to rise above some very duff material. That said, Ainley triumphs as the master in survival. He balances the desperation to survive and control that is a hallmark of the character with a softer edge of malign intensity. It doesn't hurt that he's given a costume that far better suits him and a story that plays to his strengths. Peter Pratt rips it up in The Deadly Assassin. 
I first fell in love with The Deadly Assassin way back in the early 1980s when I devoured the novelization. That blood-drippingly great cover hit a delightfully dark tale of political chicanery and bastardry. With Robert Holmes debauching the Time Lord Society, the Dwoss and Jan Vincent Rudsky had so come to love and admire. The diseased, corrupted outer shell of the master is a perfect exterior glimpse of the insanity that has clearly devoured his mind and soul in his desperation to survive a failing body. Indeed, there is something to be said that the decay of the Time Lord Society aptly mirrors that of the master. Pratt makes fantastic use of his voice in what is otherwise a physically limited role, and it is a voice that should lull all devoted fans of this story into a most nightmarish sleep. And finally, drumroll please! That's right! Roger Delgado is the master in The Terror of the Autons. What can one say? In the space of one story, Roger Caesar Marius Bernard Delgado Torres Castillo Roberto absolutely shines and makes the role his own. It's a bit shocking and sad to realise he was only in the role for two years before his untimely demise far from his family in a remote and backward country. But fans of the show and of the man himself can take great comfort that he brought to us all an urbane, witty, determined and frankly fun portrayal as the Moriarty to the Doctor's Sherlock Holmes. I dare to say that on more than one occasion this great man outshone the other great man. Nevertheless, in The Terror of the Autons, the master, with Delgado's magnificently controlled performance, leaps fully formed from Robert Holmes's forehead and into our rapt imaginations. Lots of listener and Twitter feedback, Rob, so I might get you to give me a hand reading this oh. out. So we'll start with uh, this one here. I'll read Anthony Carroll first. Uh, easy, all of season eight, uh, apart from Colony, and then add Sea Devils. Oh, all right, okay. It's almost like a recipe, isn't it? Right? Yeah, yeah, just yeah. take out Colony, add some Sea Devils. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have uh, the wonderful uh, friend of the podcast, Dave Hoskins, saying, uh, there are other decent master stories, but the only one he really works in is the deadly assassin. Mm. Daniel O. Mahoney. Mahoney wrote a great article about this in DWB, in particular how the master is usually uh, just a villain-shaped story point as opposed to a character, and he's spot on. Mm. He, she is written differently in the new series, In Fairness. Uh, Brett Dickinson's his top five are Terror of the Audience is number one, number two, The Demons, number three, Sea Devils, number four, Frontier in Space, and number five, Logopolis. Wow. Uh, he says Delgado is clearly the best version, but I also have a soft spot for Ainley as well. Clearly, we can see that. Yes. Mm. Um, next up, 26 Glorious Years. <laughs> uh, five, Survival. Ainley's wonderfully uh, understated swan song. Four, Deadly Assassins. Predictable as ever, Doctor. Three, Terror of the Autons. I'm simply trying out a new model. Two, The Sea Devils. Oh, yeah. Yes. Not really, no. Uh, and one, the demons. Ah, uh, existentially speaking. So there you go. Very good. So Andy Taylor is next, uh, not the uh, guitarist from Duran Duran. Is Shane, or is it? Is actually Duran Duran getting inducted into the Hall of Fame? As oh, they should. I did press the... I've got the Russian bots on that one. And, and just, when and when they do get into the Hall of Fame, you know what we'll do? Oh. Dance into <laughs> the fire! Well, boys. Yes, exactly. So number one is Terror of the Autons. Uh, his number two is Deadly Assassin. Three, uh, World Enough and Time. The portrayal Sim deserved. Number four, The Demons. And number five... Mind of Evil. There's some great choices by There's these people. There's some very good choices. Very fine choices. Uh, the great thing is they reflect mine and yours. <laughs> uh, this one's from uh, Jed Sweeney, uh, Carl Catters. Basically, he says uh, Utopia. 
but only the bit where Jacoby became the master. I still can't work out what he did to his eyes after he opened watch, but whatever he did, he was acting genius. He just turned to Russell T. Davies and goes, oh, how do actors do it with their eyes? Oh, wonderful marvelous that is, moments. That is absolutely one of the best moments ever where he opens that watch. Mm-hmm. And just, Jacoby was fantastic. Yes, those five seconds were incredible. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's just a shame he didn't get more. And Jed continues, whilst I was a bit meh over uh, Ainley's master, it was good in trial episode 13 to have his dialogue uh, written by Robert Holmes. And I thought the way he spoke to the courtroom was the way I wanted his master to be. Proof for me that Holmes knew the character better than most. Mm. Charles Morris says, the mind of evil. Correct. That's that, my that, number one. That's Charles, it. Let's that's go. it. That's Charles, it. let's go have a beer. Andy Kay. Top two are the demons and the terror of the autons. No question. Okay, well, we won't ask. Johnny Dab. Hopefully you, your favourite dance is a dab. Number five is uh, the Keeper of Traken. Why is it every time Cassie says the evil stands right before your eyes, I think you're not bloody kidding. She is a crazy loon. Uh, yeah, she's a bit nuts. So. Well done, Mr. Beavers, with your soft voice. He's got a very nice silky voice, Beautiful hasn't he? Really? Yeah. Voice. Number four, uh, Deadly Assassin. I love the bit inside the Matrix. Number three is uh, Master. Big finish, 49. Hey. Yeah. It's a very creepy tale, and Jeffrey really builds up on his Master's character. Actually, that's pretty good, mm. actually. I must admit, I have listened to a couple yeah. of Yeah, it's, it's the most out there of the three because there's Omega, Master, Master and uh, Davros. Oh, yes, that's mm-hmm. right, yes. Uh, number two, Unit Dominion, uh, big finished box uh, set. There are two Doctors working together in this, and there are a few twists I didn't see coming, uh, which is always cool when it happens. I think I vaguely remember that one. Was that the one with Alex McQueen? I yeah. can't remember. I think Dominion is it like, isn't it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it all sort of blurs into one, but I, yeah. I, I believe you. Uh, number one is the La Demons. Uh, Roger Delgado will always be the best master. Uh, many thanks from Johnny D from Old Blighty and. Uh, Keep punching. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, Herald of Creation. Hallelujah. Yeah, the, the man who did the, uh, the ultimate Doctor Who uh, survey through lockdowns. Thank you so much. You kept me going for that whole time. Five, Utopia. Four, Terror of the Autons. Three, Walden well, Enough in Time and the Doctor Falls. Two, The Five Doctors. Oh. Ooh, and one, Castrovalva. Five Doctors, though. It's interesting because <laughs> the Master has the best intentions, which then slowly turns into a pile of poop. Yeah, and it's all Pertwee's fault. It's all Pertwee. Now, we turn out at the earliest opportunity. <laughs> yes. It's forged, no doubt. Yeah, so basically he has no trust whatsoever. Uh, Dave from the Doctor Who Show. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. Uh, basically, it's read out his top five. So uh, his number five is uh, Planet of Fire. Uh, number four is Utopia. Uh, number three is the Sea Devils. Number two is Survival. And number one is the Demons. Uh, Non-canon. Worthy mentions are First Frontier and Face of the Enemy. That's uh, the one. That's the book. That's yes, one. Face that's, of the Enemy. That, Thank you, Dave. Dave. Thank you, Dave. It's a very good book. Now, I, I did uh, apply to Dave and said, with Utopia, why was it in your number four? And I sort of said, is it only because of the last five minutes, <laughs> really? Because that's why everybody sort of says. But I'll get you to read out what Dave responded to me. 100%. It's such a big deal, and the build-up is very effective. Also, that few minutes with Sims, where he steals the TARDIS and does the big fuck you, I'm not going to explain my plan, is cool. See, for me, it's the opposite, though. You're there going, oh my gosh, I've got Jacoby. He's amazing. He's cool. He's dark. He's a little bit theatrical. Oh, he's been shot. Oh, no, here comes the ham. Oh, it's so hammy and big and top. And he's, oh, no, we're going to get this for two episodes. And then in the end of time. Yeah. I can see it coming. See, I always thought, though, like, Missy was ham as well. It's a recipe called Missy's Surprise. This is five kilos of ham. Put on a plate. Yeah, it's a, diff- it's, 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 a, it's a different thing for me. Gomez has this style and this 
this surreal delivery and this grace about her, whereas Sims was just all big and loud and bombastic. Yeah. So, more steel, John. More steel. More steel. Iron steel. Uh, next up, Metal Hoovian. James, sorry that four out of the five of my favorites are big finish. Lord. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> five, Master. Four, The War Master. Heart of Darkness. Uh, Jacoby is back. Three, Wild Enough in Time and The Doctor Falls. Mm-hmm. Two, Masterful. Oh, that's with like all the masters together in a room. It's like Big Brother, <laughs> isn't it? And they just go, I'm more master than you are. <laughs> Anything and- you can master, I can master better. So- <laughs> And one, Ravenous 4, Day of the Master. So that is quite a lot of big finish. I think every time we mention a, a big finish story, a Nicholas Briggs gets his wings. So that's great. He does, actually. Although, I mean, to Nick's credit, he did uh, <laughs> did sort of take the piss out of him and said, when's the, uh, the Bandrill Ambassador 23 CD box set? He goes, I'll write that idea down. So <laughs> coming soon. And I want my, uh, my pan of flesh for suggesting you do. that. You do. You deserve it. The Watcher. Uh, 1963 says, I, I know you don't have any time for Big Finish. Aww. You he do says, have time. You had time like in the first couple of years when it I came out. I did. I did. I quite enjoyed it. And then it just went, oh, you know, fan wanky. So number one was a World Enough and Time and the Doctor Falls. Number two was Utopia. Number three was Deadly Assassin. Number four was Mind of Evil. And number five was the movie. Well, there you go. There you go. It has, uh, That's an interesting range of uh, different um, masters as well. Yes, absolutely. You got one from... Uh... No, you don't. <laughs> there's no Ailey there. And uh, yeah, there's no Beavers. Gordon Tipple was in the uh, beginning of the TV movie. So. And no Sasha. That's a good thing. No sashes at all. No, it's just awful. <laughs> also, Sirens of Audio says Master by Joseph Lister, yes. uh, starring Jeffrey Beavers and McCoy. Uh, chilling. Uh, free to hear on Spotify. Hey. So uh, there you go. Um, yeah, so make sure you use your, your premium uh, Spotify subscription on that. Jace Mayo says, I can see Utopia popping up as a single story again. Ah, uh, well. Uh, so his number five is uh, The Sea Devils. Number four is World Enough in Time and The Doctor Falls. Survival is number three. Number two, The Demons. And number one, Deadly Assassin. Very popular um, choice. Some great choices there. Eh? Great choices. I like it when they align with mine. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Mills, The Sea Devils, Pertwee and Delgado sword fighting. And then uh, they get on camera and they uh, get their hair pace. Exactly. And then have a sandwich as well. <laughs> Probably a tuna sandwich, I imagine. And then Bernie uh, says, uh, Turn the Ordons, Logopolis, Deadly Assassin, Sea Devils and World Enough and Time. Lots of love for that uh, World Enough in Time. It's a great story. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that's all our listener feedback as well. Thank you so much for uh, getting involved in the conversation, as I like to say. Exactly. And so that feedback has been from over a year. So thank you very much for your uh, your You've been waiting very patiently. Absolutely, absolutely right. Rob, thank you very much for coming on to our podcast today. And again, apologies for the delay. You've got pandemic. Axel Rose changing his recording dates every three days. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for your patience. It was great to have you back. It's great to be back. I always uh, love chatting with you guys. And, uh, Rob, I'm sending my love to you wherever you are. This episode going out is actually our 100th episode. Get out. Really? Yeah, I know. But as you know, you know, we do things very differently here. So, oh, yeah. basically, our 101 episode will be the hashtag celebration episode. So, <laughs> our next episode will be... Uh, dragging through the archives Great. Uh, through uh, the year 1982. 82 was when the fifth Doctor made his debut. Yeah. Uh, the greatest computer ever made uh, also made its date was launched. 
Commodore 64, that is. And not are, you keeping up, are you keeping up with the Commodore? It's always keeping up with me. And, of course, <laughs> the, uh, the greatest rock album ever released for that year was, uh, of course, Chipmunk Rock. So basically, go for that year with me. I'm getting a special guest. Oh, yes. Chris Chibnall is coming over from the Doll Queue and uh, will be helping me. No, no. So basically, uh, Rob will be back. The, uh, the Hammer of God will be back. Destroyer of Desks. Uh, he'll be back on board and uh, I've given him some homework where we're going through all those fanzines of 1982 and we're picking out the more um, interesting items, shall we say, and of course uh, going through all the letters pages and making sure that we read out the uh, then addresses of famous Doctor Who fans. Well, that's the big thing, isn't it? Yeah, the, all those images of uh, of um, Capaldi have come out. Like Ooh. we talked about it. Just that explosion, like him with Pertwee. How Sarah as good Jane. is that? That is fantastic. So great. That is actually fantastic. Yeah. I think I sent you one. It's like, look at this. And you're like, oh. You can tell the man had enthusiasm for the show back then. He lost it for a little bit. He became a proper artist. Went to art school. Burned all his Doctor Who stuff. Joined a band, a punk band with, right. uh, with Craig Ferguson. That's right. And I don't know whether you know, but uh, Peter Capaldi's first film was actually a local hero. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, and he got the he got it from he was in an elevator with the director. They got into a conversation, yeah. and the director remembered him and got him to audition and got him. There to, you go. Yeah, there and he's great so in local hero. He's great. So he falls great. in love with a mermaid. He, well, don't we all? It's, <laughs> actually, it's a very good film, and of course, uh, Mark Knopfler wrote the. Uh, Music. It's a beautiful, yeah, 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 yeah. Beautiful piece of music. But thank you very much for uh, coming over, Rob, and spending some time with uh, not only myself but our listeners as well. well and I'm, I'm looking forward to your um, hundred and second episode, which will be top five guests on yes, Forty Two to Doomsday. We'll call you. <laughs> I'm just looking awkwardly away towards a corner of my room that needs a bit of a clean. <laughs> But yeah, we'll get back to you. But thanks again, mate. Thanks for coming over. Uh, Rob will be back next episode as well. So we're looking forward to that. And uh, yes, uh, prepare your eardrums for a uh, explosion not heard since uh, Hendrix played uh, for the Beatles in 1967. It's going to be real. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. And keep punching. Chris Chipnell in the ball. <laughs> You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon. Thanks, Gov. <laughs>